In the early 21st century, the train of progress is again pulling out of the station, and this will probably be the last train ever to leave the station called Homo sapiens. Those who miss this train will never get a second chance. The main products of the 21st century will be bodies, brains, and minds, and the gap between those who know how to engineer bodies and brains and those who do not will be far bigger than the gap between sapiens and Neanderthals. In the 21st century, those who ride the train of progress will acquire divine abilities of creation and destruction, while those left behind will face extinction. Matt, Neil, thanks for having me back again. We're very excited to have you back again, Adil, for this, I suppose, third part in our series of Yuval Noah Harari's two book. It doesn't really feel like a sequel, but it's also not a separate entity, right? Yeah. I guess we call it a sequel. So today, obviously, we were talking about Homo Deus, which is Harari's follow-up to his mega bestseller, Sapiens, which we covered in the last two episodes. So if you haven't listened to those two episodes, uh, we definitely recommend them. They're fantastic. Adil was with us for those as well. And they will give you some good context if you're coming into this episode having not read Sapiens or having never listened to Made You Think before, <laughs> which is possible, right? This yeah. could be your first episode. So, But you could also just jump in here and enjoy it and you know go back and listen to Sapiens after. It's, it's really up to you. The first two thirds of this book was, I felt, was basically a reiteration of the main principles of Sapiens. Very similar. So I yeah. imagine if we yeah. cover those at any depth, you could probably skip three hours and join us here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think he meant it. At least by the sense I got is that he meant it as like a standalone book that yeah. you didn't need to have read Sapiens before reading this. So he touched on a lot of the same themes, which I know we read the books back to back. So for us, I don't know about you guys, for me, it, a lot, like the beginning especially felt like, okay, didn't we just cover this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think like the sense I got is he probably meant that you can just pick up this book, not having read Sapiens and still get something useful out of it. It didn't feel it was too redundant. Like in no, Sapiens, it wasn't necessarily the examples weren't redundant, but I guess the idea was still like, you know, that there's yeah. narrative story matters a lot and you know, like what makes humans unique versus animal. Like there was some of those same, there were some of those same themes that popped up. It was similar, definitely thematically similar. I think he flipped it a mm. little bit, where in Sapiens, religion was sort of a subset of the fact that humans believe in myths and ideas. Whereas over here, the, it, this is essentially a religion book, I felt. Mm. The entire yeah. book was about different religions. Yeah, whether it's humanism or, yeah. which we'll get into like that. But yeah, it's, exactly. So not necessarily ancient religions, but it separates yeah. out like ancient religions, modern religions, and potentially yeah. the future. I mean, yeah. He doesn't need to make any concrete predictions beyond discussing potential future religions. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that was probably his big challenge with the book, too. And what he tries to defend himself so much against throughout the book is, <laughs> yeah. is he is trying to write about the future, but he also knows that it's impossible to predict the future. Exactly. Right? So he's like he's, too smart to make the predictions like in yeah. a definitive way, which is good. Which is good. I think like then the book would have been useless if it was just predictions about the future. But I think what he does he threads the needle nicely. is that there are some ways you can predict the future, yeah. which is, you know, human behavior, right? And incentives like predicting specific technologies is really hard, right? He had that great line in Sapiens that in the 50s, people were expecting we'd have like flying cars and moon bases, yeah. but nobody was predicting the Internet. Right. right. And so you never know what technologies are going to come out, but you can get some ideas about how human behavior might develop with certain reliable trends. Right. It's like the amount of data we will have access to is almost certainly going to go up. Yeah. And like the speed of communication is almost certainly going to go up and like processing power is almost certainly going to go up. So, OK, you know, from that, what can we extrapolate? And I feel like that's what he's trying to do here based on a lot of the principles that he talked about in the, Sapiens. The other thing I appreciated about it was he frames predictions as sometimes you say them and because you said it, they cannot happen. 
Mm. They create this discourse. Mm. And a lot of the book to me felt, you know, on one hand, it was very optimistic. It was like, yeah, we're going to accomplish these great things. But the undercurrent felt very negative to me. Whereas we're going to accomplish great things and that will be our downfall. Mm. I won't give it away since we'll dive into it. But, and he reiterated the beginning and the end. He's like, a prediction can be a warning. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is also this like really interesting feedback loop, right? It was like once something is being talked about, it very interestingly like shapes the future of that same thing, yeah. right? It's like in a good or bad way. Yeah. Possibly, oh, he gave the right? communism yeah. example. Yeah. Where Karl Marx wrote about the proletariat overthrowing or whatever. I don't know which word is which. Not that sophisticated. But <laughs> yeah, as a result, uh, governments who heard of his work started taking precautionary measures and his system never happened. Right. Yeah. At least exactly. successfully. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, and I think we also talked about this in the Sapiens episode, but it's so interesting how much narrative and story like affects how we view technologies like pre 2016 election i don't think there was there were too many people besides nat like talking <laughs> shit about facebook right like facebook wasn't necessarily a deal was, a deal was uh, maybe i deleted it before it was cool okay yeah. okay <laughs> fine mr hipster over here yeah. but I came back. But then he came back yeah you got too lonely <laughs> the abuse of x yeah <laughs> But like now it's like become almost, I don't want to say cool to do it because that's not still what I'm trying to say, but it's like much more acceptable to be critical of social media in general than it was like two years ago. But the actual product hasn't really changed. Well, it's about the adoption. Like there's nothing different, but there's really nothing different about the product. Like they didn't make any product changes to cause this to happen. It was like if Donald Trump was ever elected, like this would have never even come up. Yeah, that's At least in this context, maybe it would have come up at some point through something else, but we wouldn't be talking about it because like the election's really what tipped things, I feel like, in a major way. And that could be true for, I mean, even like, I don't know, 2014, 2013, yeah. I feel like tech in general was so positively viewed, changing the world kind of mentality, right? But it has sort of, at least in the me- media, maybe, like has tipped in the other direction where you definitely see way more articles now about like tech dystopia yeah. than you did in 2013. Yeah, the narrative has changed. The it's narrative has changed. The adoption of the idea. When I, so I, the year after I deleted Facebook, I also got off Google. Oh, because okay. what I realized was I was like, well, Facebook's scary. Google is 10 times scarier. Yeah. And at the time, I would try explaining it to people and they'd be like, hey, you weird fucking hermit. You know, they'd be like, why can't I add you to a Google Doc? Speaking you know? of Google, like, though, I checked out Timeline, the uh, Google Timeline. Oh, yeah. Isn't it horrifying? It's no, terrifying. I have nothing on there because oh, it says wow. your location services are turned off, which I don't know how mm. because I use Google Maps, but I guess I don't share it with you. might be logged into Google Maps. I don't think I am, actually. Yeah. yeah. There you go. If you're not logged in, then it wouldn't. Yeah, I, will, I was actually kind of disappointed because I was looking, I was ready to be so <laughs> creeped out and like, rage against this and then i go in and it's like we have no data for you and i'm like damn it <laughs> it's like, oh, no. i hate it when you respect my privacy settings <laughs> i'm not popular enough to be trapped <laughs> like back when i deleted it and i brought it up with people no one ever engaged me on the privacy aspect they were like okay dude fine it was all about convenience oh, but yeah. now the narrative has changed right now everyone's talking privacy yep I mean, it's like, that's probably, and I take from Harari, at least that's like his biggest point that he makes across both books is like how much the narrative affects both like how we interpret things and then how we act on things too. Yeah. Um, moving yeah. forward. I, I don't know. I saw that play out throughout this book too. Like it's kind of what he's talking about. Well, and it ties into how he opens the book, which is the, you know, the human agenda up until now has been, you know, don't die, procreate, like try to have a culture around you. Protect your tribe. Yeah, protect your tribe, all of that. And now he's saying kind of like the new human agenda is how do we become gods? We want more power, more money. We want to live forever. We want to like transcend the limits of our current humanity and like use technology and data and all these things to like go to the next level. We've like beaten biology for the most part, right? Like people don't 
die of starvation and stuff anymore. Like, except, you know, very few parts of the world where that's actually still an issue. And that's right? less a problem of like growing the food. It's more a distribution problem. Yeah. A lot of it is distribution too, right? I mean, we can grow enough food for everyone. It's just like hard to get it everywhere. Get it, yeah. He's got this great line in the beginning that for the first time in history, more people die today from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age than from infectious diseases and more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. Right, the biology is no longer our biggest concern. It's literally ourselves. Yeah. And that is the next step of kind of this transcendence and growth for the species. I didn't buy the transcendence stuff before I read the book. Mm. But the way he explained it, I really liked. So what he what he says is humans were concerned with three things specifically. One was famine, the other was plague, and then war. Yeah. And you know, war is still around, but basically he argues that there are no more natural famines, right? It's a political failure when there is, yeah, yeah. right? There's no more plague because, you know, there is, but even when it is, we don't, you know, curse at God, we get mad at, you know, the World Health Organization. And then war is, I, I, he argues somewhere it's like less than it's ever been or... Yeah, well, exactly. it's like the better angels of our nature argument, oh, right? Yeah. It's like, yes, that is true. You know, if we start counting in 1950, right, there yeah. is significantly less death from war, right? But at the same time, you know, the world wars killed more people than in all wars before them combined, right? Well, and then there's also the magnitude potential now of a of any kind of global conflict yeah. triggering. Yeah. Like, you yeah. could have it kill more than the world wars combined exactly. easily. We could kill like more that. in people in 10 minutes right. than were killed Both in all of history wars. up yeah, to yesterday. That's true. Yeah, so it's like, that's the whole Pinker to Lev argument, right? Is that like Pinker says this exact thing that violence has gone down, which is, yes, I mean, objectively, that's yeah. true. If you start counting in the right year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's like also like that stat could change tomorrow. You could be like, well, this year more people died from war than all the previous years of yeah. humanity combined. So it's like, on one hand, it's true. But on the other hand, like that might not be true in 10 years or something. Yeah. Like, hopefully it's true. I mean, that'd be great. That's kind of the one caveat we have to add to this argument is that all three of his statements are true. Same with famine. I mean, not famines, plague. Exactly. Plague and, and famine, famine, actually. Famines yeah. Too, yeah. Like all three of them are true with like a little asterisk that says, you know, accepting, you know, if we assume no major black swans, right? Well, black Which is kind of a or, dangerous Or fragility to too, right? So I would say like famine's one reason we can grow so much food. Not the only reason by far, right? Definitely not the only reason. But GMOs have made that, have helped. Like we can grow so much food because of that. And, yeah. you know, but that's fragile. Exactly. Right. So it's like all yeah. of these three arguments are, they are all objectively true, but they also are objectively fragile at the moment. Not saying it's not going to be possible to make them in, like anti-fragile or more robust, but at the moment they feel fragile. Yeah. I mean, actually, I felt this, especially as he gets to the end. So I'll save the longer rant for then. But <laughs> by the time he was getting to his like really futuristic stuff, I was, all the premises were fragile. Mm, like, yeah. Any, you don't even have to call it black swan. Any slightly destabilizing event would just throw the whole thing off. Yeah. Which, you know, I really liked where he was going with this argument, but I wish he at least acknowledged it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that, that was the, I think, hard thing I had with some of it, too, is that everything that he says in the intro about everything we've done, like, is true until it isn't. It's kind of like, it'd be, I can imagine somebody hanging out in 1910 saying, <laughs> yeah. like, Oh my God, you know, we're like, it's such an amazing time of yeah. peace. Well, they were. Like no that major was the wars. thing. Yeah. It's like World War One was such a black swan for everybody because like no one thought that that type of thing is possible. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, we're all secure. Like we're all friends. And then this like one bit, like fairly minor incident, really. Right. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things. Just tips like, the dominoes. Yep. Yeah, it's, a black, it's like the definition of a black swan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right though. Like some of these things, you don't even need a black swan yeah. to get there. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, like the GMO thing, people... Are, like it wouldn't really be a black swan if there was a, a no, disease it, that was just like because we're just be we monocrop. That would be a black swan. I mean, you could well, no, but you could imagine a blight appears. Yes, right. Like, so well, I'm just saying there's enough people talking about that 
that's yeah. like the, all the risks of GMOs. That's like one of the major things it's people no point risk, to is yeah. the monocropping. Right. Although I guess maybe in 1910, say, maybe people were talking about that too. Like there are always people, like some people talking about yeah. it, right? I mean, there were people talking about the housing crisis that's in true. 2006. That's a good point. Nobody that's, paid attention to them. That's true. Right? <laughs> it's not a black swan. Taleb, we don't want to go down to Taleb. <laughs> yeah. Even he says it's a black swan based on your perspective, right? That's so, true. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, every black swan is subjective. Yeah. Right. Let's that's a good point. What he does is, you know, he frames those three items, famine, plague, and war. And he's like, for the most part, we've conquered these asterisks included. But, uh, and all three of these are assaults on human life. Yeah. And now what yeah. we achieve is that since people are dying of old age, Alzheimer's or cancer, what's really happening is they're just dying at the age they should be dying at, right? We haven't Getting extended close. human life yet. And yeah. then the next project is an all-out assault on death. Like, he basically frames the high-level idea here as we're just fighting death, even though we may call it famine, plague, and war. The real enemy is death, and the way we'll turn against it is, you know, extending life now since yeah. we've achieved our usual lifespan. Well, and he calls out something important here that I think a lot of people forget, which is, and I'll just read from the book, you know, so far modern medicine hasn't extended our natural lifespan by a single yeah. year. Its great achievement has been to save us from premature death and allow us to enjoy the full measure of our years. Even if we now overcome cancer, diabetes, and the other major killers, it would mean only that almost everyone will get to live to 90 but it will not be enough to reach 150, let alone 500. For that, medicine will need to re-engineer the most fundamental structures and processes of the human body and discover how to regenerate organs and tissues. Right? There's like kind of two phases, and we've done a great job at making ourselves not die early, but we really haven't done anything to expand beyond that, which is part of why you'll see a lot of these centenarians, people who are over 100, who can still like walk around and be, you know, agile and fit and stuff, who smoke cigarettes and drink whiskey. Right. Day, yeah. Right. It's not an uncommon thing. Yeah. I think something like half of centenarians are smokers. Right. Wow. And it's just a matter of like genetics. Right. Some people just genetically live way longer yeah. and you can do all of the most amazing like health stuff in the world. But if you don't have those genes, you're not making it past 100. Right. Right. And we don't have any way to counter that right now. And I wish he did talk about one thing in the intro that like so like how he calls aging a disease which is like i guess if you like how you define it it's it's kind of true like old age is like it's gonna it happens to all of us whether or not you're gonna live to like 120 or 80 but when i first started at este i was reading about this a lot the whole reason aging happens in the first place is like the shortening of your telomeres and we haven't really figured out how to affect that like there's been a lot of research on that but like they haven't maybe genetic engineering will be the way to affect that but it's like so far we just haven't touched that part at all so to his point he's like 100 percent right that like we haven't extended and so it seems to me that like the people who live that long it's like their telomeres probably shorten at a slower rate uh they're, they're born with longer ones or usually. longer ones okay yeah, yeah. because it's yeah, basically it's like, every time as i understand every it every divides. time your cell divides yep. it it shortens as, as i've heard it described as like taking a ring off the end of the telomeres yeah, and once exactly. it hits zero then the um the splitting starts to malfunction yeah. and mutate and that's when you start to get cancers and stuff yep so yeah so it's like a taking time on basically so the yeah. people who yeah so it's like you're kind of born with super long ones or you're not or and that's sort of your natural lifespan but they haven't really figured out how to like mess with it too much i guess fasting has uh they were saying for animals you see yeah. That? yeah so fasting can I can't remember They've if done it, a human trial on it elongates or, or just slows. I think it slows down the yeah, shortening. Yeah, I think it slows the shortening. Yeah. But I think in like C. elegans and stuff, you know, little like flatworms, I think they have managed to lengthen. Make them longer. Telomeres, yeah. 
through just like little genetic engineering CRISPR type stuff. Yeah. But yeah, translating that to humans, right? That's no, would be hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, I mean, it's super risky, right? Right. Because you could, you know, accidentally mutate a cancer cell to have super long telomeres and then it's an uncurable cancer in right. the body, right? Yeah. Like, that's not good either. No. So. Yeah, it's one of those things where... Like he's right. Like we've solved a lot of the things that would shorten your life, like famine and, you know, many diseases. Like there's so many diseases that 50 years ago were a major problem, which just like we don't even think about. Right. Like past- smallpox is like straight up not a thing in America. Well, and I think now if you make it past 40 or 50, you're basically going to die of four things. Cancer, right? heart it's disease. cancer, heart disease, cognitive decline. And um, there's another one, the fourth one. Actually, you know, it might be that like stroke is a separate one oh, from okay. cognitive mm-hmm. decline because yeah, there's like the Alzheimer's group and then like stroke might be the other one. But I know like those are the big three, heart disease, cancer and Alzheimer's basically. Yeah. So if you can just make it past those. And to be fair, it's really I think we can pretty easily or maybe not easily, but we definitely have ideas about how to deal with cognitive decline and heart disease yeah. through like behavioral modifications right. but cancer you can't really because it's like a natural consequence of aging right? right it's like your cells eventually reach the point where they start to mutate in you know these well some of it's just random too it's just right. like you get a mutation that's just in the wrong place and it just divides and then you're kind of like screwed at that point the other complication with cancer is that it's not just like cancer right you there's know, all are, the subcategories yeah yeah and, and each one is treated differently and each and one is caught, really its yeah. own disease even yeah. like you think of something like i had a friend who was working i can't say too much about where and on with whom because <laughs> i don't think he was supposed to mention much of it but uh they were working on a specific type of cancer let's say uh let's just make one up let's say breast cancer and they were working specifically within like there are so many different types that you just call all of them breast cancer, but they're treated differently, caused differently. Right. Well, I guess they don't really know the causes, but whatever they're finding is that they are just completely separate diseases. Mm. But the way we discuss it is we just thought it was breast cancer, right? Yeah. And so it just makes like it category, infinitely more a, complicated because yeah, you can't a, just solve cancer. Exactly. Right? Right. It's like a characterization problem, right? Where it's like you can call them all by the same thing, but there might be 20 different diseases underneath that. Yeah. And then under cancers, there are – so that means if yeah. like each type of cancer is like 20 different things – and there's so many different types of cancer to begin with. I mean, there's like hundreds of diseases then yeah. to solve. So, yeah, it's not like, oh, we'll solve cancer. But he makes this interesting point in this section about how we have this desire for immortality, but it comes with weird consequences, right? Because he says, think for a moment about your own workplace. No matter whether you're a scholar, journalist, cook, or football player, how would you feel if your boss were 120, his ideas were formulated when Victoria was still queen, and he was likely to stay your boss for a couple of decades more? Right, that would be an odd world a couple to be hundred in. years more. Yeah. Like, have, you, have you seen Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the documentary? So, uh, you know, it's like super famous sushi chef in Japan, like probably the best in the world. And his son is still working yeah. at his sushi restaurant with him. And his son is like 60 yeah. and has yeah. not taken over the restaurant yet because Jiro is still kicking at like 95 Dude, running this, this restaurant. True. This is true at Estee Lauder, too. So the chairman of the board is this guy, Leonard Lauder, who's Estee Lauder's son. And he's like 90. And his son is like 65 or something. (laughs) And he's like waiting in the wings ever since he was like born, basically. Wow. And he's still chilling, like still works with the company. I forget what his exact title is, but he's like basically just waiting for his dad to step down. But it just hasn't happened yet. And he's like at retirement age and his dad is still like (laughs) waiting in the wings. That would suck. Yeah, that'd be hard. That would be really hard. You know, Harari doesn't connect the two ideas, but you know, over here he's explaining... Basically, what this is implicitly saying is that ideas will slow down if you live longer. 
right? Because or I yeah. guess the the yeah the evolution of the ideas will slow down. Exactly. Yeah. Assuming that people are beholden, unless someone people suddenly becoming infinitely flexible with ideas and they. Which <laughs> That's I don't, a, that, I don't see that happening. Yeah. But then later he talks about the biggest competition to us being technology mm-hmm. and how technology only accelerates. But it seems like we're moving in opposite directions because mm. of the acceleration of technology, you can live longer. But if you live longer, you're somehow less fit to compete with technology since your ideas evolve more ah, slowly and are based in like oh, yeah. older times. Yeah, there's like this dichotomy there. So again, like the over the premise, of, not the premise, the high level idea of the book, the better we get, the more we hurt ourselves. Yeah. And this is a pretty terrible way. I mean, imagine if you... We're in your 20s 100 years ago. Yeah. God, <laughs> right? Yeah. I know. Well, I was also thinking about like denial of death when I was reading this first section because it was like in a weird way, like death is a big motivator, right? The fact that you won't be, you know, 25 in 10 years yeah. is yeah. like a big motivator to like get moving and work. But if you were like, oh, I'm going to be this exact same person in 100 years, like I'll just do that tomorrow becomes a very easy excuse to make. Yeah, I got plenty. I got all the time in the world, basically. He addresses that because he's talking about, you know, we're not going to become immortal. We're going to become amortal. Right. Right. So you can still die. Yeah, you can still die like a car. Yeah, exactly. So, and this is the interesting point is for us, what he says, you know, we're like willing to take risks because we're going to die at some point. We don't know when. Yeah. Right. Which that part doesn't change, I guess. You would still have that risk. What he says is though, if you're immortal is... uh, You might take less risks. Well, he's actually saying if, if you can live forever, assuming you don't hit, get hit by yeah. a bus yep. and immortality is on the line, then you're never going to go skydiving or right. ziplining. Or yeah, because for us, it's like if we take a risk, it's like, well, it was going to happen anyway yeah. at some point. Yeah. And it could have happened next weekend. Yeah. Was, yeah. Well, that's always the big argument, too, against desiring immortality is that, you know, if you're immortal, like you'll get stuck eventually. Yeah. Right. Like you'll you'll fall into something or like, you know, heat death of the universe, or whatever. You'll just be floating in space. Right. Like you don't actually want non-death, but it's but you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was telling this to you at dinner. I, yeah. I was like, I would love to be immortal and like me and my homies. But you know, after I read this, I was like, I don't want everyone to be immortal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those weird things like none of, well, not maybe not none of us, but a lot yeah. of us don't like rainy days. Right. But if like every day is sunny, I noticed, I noticed yeah. this when I was living in California because I was there during the drought. So like um, it only rained like maybe four times during the year that I lived there. Yeah. And I remember just being at one point, like initially when I moved there, I was like, this place is awesome. Cause you move from <laughs> Pittsburgh to <laughs> California. You're like, this place is amazing. But and then, then after like six, like six months, six months. <laughs> exactly. But then in like six months, right? Like it was like Christmas time and it was still sunny and warm. <laughs> and I'm just like, this feels weird. And there's like Christmas decorations. I'm like, it should be cloudy. Yeah. It should be like cold i shouldn't be walking around in a t-shirt and shorts (laughs) in freaking december yeah so exactly you stop appreciating it and in a weird way like in places with shitty weather like every time i visit london if they get a sunny day everybody talks about it everyone has a big smile on their face and we probably noticed that in at cmu too remember when it was sunny out like people would go on that hill and just like, It'd be like 50 degrees but and if it was sunny people would be like out in Yo, swimsuits in <laughs> yeah so so uh, the way i'm, I'm kind of like comparing that to this immortality thing where it's like if you could never die you would never have that negative sort of thing happen like maybe i guess you still could because as you said people could still get hit by a bus and stuff but you might not appreciate like life as much because if you could have every moment in life infinite number of times each one would not really be special in any way there's a tangent i've been sitting on yes okay. Good. This is my first tangent. <laughs> Fourth episode, but first tangent. Have Still in the introduction of, you, of the book. Let's do it. <laughs> have either of you, uh, I, I know I mentioned this to you, but have either of you watched Alter Carbon on Netflix? I have not. Half of the first episode. So uh, without giving anything away, great show. I don't want to ruin it for anyone. The premise I found overlapped a lot with oh, stuff in Homo Deus, where the premise is 
uh, we've engineered ourselves to this point where you have a little chip in your neck and it is constantly synced with your brain. Let's not get into mind-brain stuff yet. Let's just assume it's possible for the sake of the show, <laughs> sure. right? And what you can now do is you can just remove that chip, put it in a different body. And it's expensive, obviously, as are all new things. But what happens is the rich are able to do this. And by doing this, they can live forever, effectively. You can back your chip up. You can have tons of, they call them sleeves or bodies or sleeves. Mm. You can slip in and out of different sleeves. And you know, Harari gets at this as well as the stratification of society just becomes immense, right? Because the poor are getting like government issued uh, sleeves where like when you died, you were a 12-year-old girl, but they brought you back and you can't afford a sleeve. So now you're like a 40-year-old man. Right, but you're actually you know your chip your first twelve years were a female body, you, right? yeah. And the rich just accumulate more and more wealth. And the premise of the show is about the rich have nothing left to do, so huh. they just do fucked up shit. And I mean, especially after reading this, I when I first watched the show, I was like, oh, okay, I was like, cool show. Don't necessarily buy a lot of stuff <laughs> after reading Harari's. I mean, I'm curious what he would think because after reading Homo Deus, I was like, okay, it's inched up in the plausibility <laughs> <laughs> plausibility index. It's very dystopian. Like it, I would be horrified if that came up now. Interesting. Yeah, I kind of want to watch that show. Yeah, and it brings up actually another kind of important point from the intro that Harari is using to lead into the next section, which is that historically up until now, we have basically focused entirely on manipulating our environment to fit us. Yeah. And now with, you know, kind of like this time period and into the future, it looks like we're going to be focused more on manipulating us to effectively like transcend the environment. And he gives this example where, like with education, where it says that hitherto everybody still agreed on one thing. In order to improve education, we need to change the schools. Today, for the first time in history, at least some people think it would be more efficient to change the pupils' biochemistry. So he's saying that we have moved from switching the environment to changing ourselves. And what he really highlights is, you know, like because some drugs are illegal, and some drugs aren't. And so how does that distinction happen? And it seems to be at least partially influenced by uh, like social productivity, right? Where the state hopes to regulate the biochemical pursuit of happiness, separating bad manipulations from good ones. The principle is clear. Biochemical manipulations that strengthen political stability, social order, and economic growth are allowed and even encouraged. For example, those that calm hyperactive kids in school or drive anxious soldiers forward into battle. Manipulations that threaten stability and growth are banned. It's a perfect explanation of why something like, you know, cigarettes can be legal, but mushrooms can't. Yeah, or Adderall. Yeah, or Adderall, right? Like you can smoke and do Adderall, right? And be like a really productive member of society. But if you're like taking shrooms, then you're not going to be very productive in your like factory job. Yeah. <laughs> I'd probably be dangerous to have you there. <laughs> so... Well, and it's cool because then he goes into how this can lead to some of these other manifestations of superhuman power, right? Like with medicine, where medicine always begins as helping people who are below the norm, but the same tools and know-how can then be used to surpass the norm. Like Viagra, right? He says, Viagra began life as a treatment for blood pressure problems. To the surprise and delight of Fitzer, it transpired that Viagra can also overcome impotence. It enabled millions of men to regain normal sexual abilities, but soon enough, men who had no impotence problems in the first place began using the same pill to surpass the norm and acquire sexual powers they never had before. Yeah, that right. was a really good analogy. It's a perfect analogy. I mean, it's the same reason why people who don't need to take Adderall take Adderall. Yeah. Right? It's like the exact same reason. And we saw the growth of that over our four years in college, where freshman year, maybe a couple folks did it. It was culturally kind of, eh. By senior year, people were literally crushing Adderall in the library and snorting it. 
Like, are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Quite okay. literally. Uh, yeah. Wait, I knew one person who did that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if ever, yeah, we're thinking the same. We were both there. Yeah. But it happened, and it but was kind of a group, and it was okay. Yeah, it was just like you a know? casual thing. It wasn't thing. something like, what the fuck are yeah. you doing? Everyone was like, yeah. oh, cool. You know, he's snorting yeah. Adderall again. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you know, more broadly than that, it did seem, I, I felt there was a transition from, oh, okay, a few people are on Adderall freshman year to senior year. It was like, oh, yeah, you take Adderall before an exam. Yeah. Right? It was just like a thing you did. And it was just like a completely normal, like nobody really questioned it. It was like, well, obviously you do that, right? Because everybody else is doing it. So how are you going to compete on the exam, right? If you're not doing it, it's kind of like cheating, right? It's like everybody was cheating on everything, right? Because if you didn't, then you were literally at a disadvantage, right? And so it creates this weird race to the bottom through perverse incentives from the school. Same thing with steroids in sports too. It's like if a few people are getting away with it, then you basically need to figure out how to get away with it or you're not going to be good anymore. Exactly. You won't be able to compete. Yeah. I think sports should allow steroids i think it'd be way more interesting maybe these guys just like jacked the, out of their no mind. but the injuries get like a lot UFC's worse like beaten. no dude they but have the steroids in- they're stronger they won't get injured as much or they'll get injured more because your skeleton doesn't can't necessarily handle that well we'll make a drill for that <laughs> dance monkeys come on that's like one of the big things with the nfl of like people are so confused about why there's so many more injuries now because yeah. the rules are so much better like if you go look wow. at videos from the 80s and the 90s so much rougher like people are leading with their helmet it's like going straight into people's heads barreling with their helmet into someone's chest like all these things that are just like not allowed anymore yeah oh the whole defenseless receiver thing where it used to be if you go up if a receiver jumps you can get just like nailed by like four people going full speed now it's like there's a rule like defenseless receiver you can't hit them so all these rules changes have happened but more and more people still get injured and more severely and the big thing is like the players are just like very clearly bigger. Like you go to YouTube and watch like an 80s NFL game and it's just like normal size. Definitely big people, but they, they don't look like bodybuilders. They're like 300 pounds of pure muscle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there are fat people, there are athletic people, but they're usually not like big and athletic. There's not like 300 pound like people who can run faster than like a sprinter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. It's like that's sort of the un not unwritten, but sort of underground reason like that a lot of people suspect because like the steroid thing is... The way the testing rules are, the NFL is super loose with it. Mm. Uh They do one test a year. And once you're tested, you're good for the rest of the year. So if you get tested in like preseason, you can take whatever the hell you want. Yeah. <laughs> you can take the flesh out of your system. I'm, I'm not sure. But I, and it probably depends on what you <laughs> what you need it to bulk up now after you're... <laughs> also, you grow like six, seven inches. <laughs> <laughs> so then after the intro, he or Hari jumps into the first part, which is about how Homo sapiens conquered the world. And most of this is kind of a synopsis from Sapiens, like we said. If you want the details, uh, go read that. But or listen, to the the, or listen to the episode. Yeah, exactly. More importantly. But the TLDR is that humans were able to communicate and create shared mythology and shared ideas, which have morphed mostly into religions and culture and, you know, a lot of the things that we, uh, you know, think of as the real world today. And that shared mythology, that culture, those religions allowed us to conquer the natural world and create a totally sapient-dominated world. And I think we're kind of going to skip ahead here a little bit and just dive into where he starts to get into the more modern manifestations of those religions, because the core of it, which is humanism, becomes sort of the staging ground for the rest of the book. So what he kind of The progression he gives is that the agricultural revolution gave rise to theist religions, where we start to believe in, you know, monotheism, polytheism, like all of the older religions as you'd think of it. The scientific revolution gave birth to humanist religions, where humans replace gods. We no longer look to gods and deities for the source of power and the source of truth. We look to humans. 
And then there's a variety of humans or of humanist religions in there. And so he gives some examples and he says that the founding idea of humanist religions, such as liberalism, communism, and Nazism, is that Homo sapiens has some unique and sacred essence that is the source of all meaning and authority in the universe. Everything that happens in the cosmos is judged to be good or bad according to its impact on Homo sapiens. So he kind of goes from there and he dives a lot more into humanism in part two, yeah. but he starts off with some of the critiques right here. And the biggest issue that he starts to draw with it is that there is this reliance on something special about humans. And before in the theist religions, that was the soul, right? That you had this immortal soul that could transcend the physical plane and, you know, you go and be with God or, you know, whatever religious version of it you have. And now with the humanist religions, it's that there is our mind and our consciousness. And that is the thing that makes us special. The problem he kind of highlights is that we don't really have a good grasp on what exactly the mind is or if it's even there at all. The line he has that I love is this kind of philosophical question, which is, you know, what happens in the mind that doesn't happen in the brain? And reading from the book, if nothing happens in the mind except what happens in our massive network of neurons, then why do we need the mind? If something does indeed happen in the mind over and above what happens in the neural network, where the hell does it happen? It's a great question. <laughs> there has to be a place where that thought or something is happening. And if it's not happening in the neurons, then you're forced to say there is a soul or something. Could there be, though, like in GEB, could there be, uh, go to Escherbach for people who haven't listened to that episode, like some type of emergent property? Does that solve the paradox in some ways? Or is that kind of just punting on the problem? I think that is part of the paradox because an emergent property of a system is still from the system yeah. right it doesn't it's not living outside of it right right like cars driving in the street can create the emergent property of traffic yeah but that is still a function of the cars yeah right there's like the ant situation that we had talked about right like with yeah. the ants producing the little arches but it's still a function of the it's ants. a function of the ants but you wouldn't be able to see it by looking at a single ant right so it's like no you would though but you in, would... in that case i think you would right because you could break down the motions of each ant if you add them all up together right a single ant can't explain that's what i mean an yeah. ant colony yeah, yeah yeah that's true and a single neuron can't explain the brain Mind, yeah. but i think that well we have to be careful here the single neuron can't Mind explain the brain. the brain yeah right but then the question is can the brain explain the mind and what Maybe. i think people have a problem <laughs> i think people have a problem with that because they don't want to because if you say that the mind is just the brain, then there's no you, there's right. no like free will, there's no conscious thought. It's just right. like electricity firing around. But if you say that the mind is not the brain, then there has to be something else. And it's like, well, what is the something else, right? You're kind of forced to go back to, oh, well, there's this soul that right. is like sitting there, right? Or, or something analogous to a soul. Yeah. And that obviously doesn't square with anything scientific. Right. So you're, you're, stuck, you're stuck in yeah. this choice. And what Harari is getting at is that there probably is no mind. It's just the brain. Yeah. And he makes a fairly compelling argument for it where it's, you know, we've had all of these concepts historically to explain things that we don't understand, like the ether, right? We yeah. used to believe that light traveled through this ether and that was how it was able to move around. And then eventually we figured out like, well, no, light can just travel through nothingness because it's this weird combination of waves and particles and it's, you know, moving at you know max speed and is kind of simultaneously everywhere at once and like all this weird shit, right? Yep. And we had to get rid of the idea of the ether. And so maybe we need to get rid of the idea of minds as well, as uncomfortable as that is. Although in a day-to-day -day experience, that kind of is a useless idea, right? Because people seem to have free will and you can seem <laughs> to influence other people. Right? Yeah. Like just the fact that you are deciding to listen to this podcast, there is like 
maybe it's not the precise way to define it, but there is somebody inside of you or a you who has decided to click on Made You Think and listen to the podcast as opposed to another podcast or sleeping or doing something else with your time, right? So, but like, I see what he's saying here, right? Like, it's like a different discussion. It's like a day-to-day functionality versus a, like, what is scientifically true functionality. And from the ether, sorry, just one, I just want to complete the thought with like the ether thing. It kind of didn't matter for people's day-to-day which one was right. Like, they knew how light functioned. Maybe they didn't know, like, maybe scientists didn't know how it functioned. But, like, for a person, it didn't really affect their day-to-day, whether it was the ether or a vacuum or whatever. Like, or whether light is a particle or a wave. So, the one thing, I, I see how, why he's making that point here. But I think, like, the one thing that, like, I think he maybe didn't connect yet, at least, or he could have brought up in this point is just where that's going to affect humans, like knowing this or not, like if it's going to matter that much. I think it will matter down the line. He gets there, but he didn't really bring that up here. <laughs> I actually think it does matter now because okay. if you... So I, I do think this way, right? Like I don't think that we actually have a conscious will pushing any of our actions, that we're mostly just reacting to the stimuli there. And what we call consciousness is just observing what the body is doing. So I, I was observing that that's a whole nother question, right? That's no, nobody's observing. You are observing yourself, right? Like there, there is no, <laughs> these other, are strange loops. Right? It's a back. very strange I loop. I agree. I, I agree. I agree. But uh, let me get to the relevance. Okay, yeah, sorry. Right. When Pepper does something bad, I know that that's not because she is like maliciously doing something bad. It's just like a function of the programming and the reactions and stuff. Right. I know that when I do something against like my long-term interests, that is not necessarily a like, Oh, I have chosen to cheat on my diet today. Right. It's something in my environment caused that impulse. And so that as a way of framing, shaping my own behavior. Now, obviously it's like, okay, well, who's the shaper, right? Uh, it gets there obviously lots of strange loops sure. here, but yeah. thinking about other people and yourself as not having free will and just reacting to like stimuli plus past programming, I find very helpful because it lets you think better about how to structure your own life and environment, how to like influence the actions or understand the actions of people around you. Because you, you never have to say like, oh, you know, like, how did they do or why did they do that? Or why did they believe that? Right. You you have like a good idea of where some of this stuff comes from. It's like when you just can't imagine how somebody believes something. Right. When you know, super Republicans can't imagine how super Democrats believe some idea and vice versa. Right? Well, it's probably for the same reasons you believe it. Yeah. Right. It's like different inputs. And I find that that's actually a super helpful mental model to have, because if you think that people are these, you know, rational, free will calculating beasts, then things don't make sense, right? They just like do not make sense. But if it's just, okay, inputs, outputs, and we're just along for the ride watching, stuff kind of makes more sense. And I don't know, I find that I am less offended by people behaving in certain ways. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I do think though that there are like, so by that argument, then like nobody does anything wrong or nobody does anything good either. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a defensible point. I think there's like a, there's somewhere in the middle where I think they're like the truth is right. Like I think, so you, you think people just don't decide what they do Yeah. at all, at all. And I think, and this is where we get into weird problems. See, but you don't act that way, right? Because I would say that you like, okay, I'm using you as a form of speech (laughs) right i'm not saying like you as in there is a soul or a consciousness or whatever but like you seem for your entire at least as long as i've known you have made taken actions to improve your life and it seems to be conscious actions because those actions are not easy like you're not taking like like it would be much easier to like eat pizza like (laughs) you know like drink like there's a lot of easy actions you could take like for example actually a really good example i'll bring up is the argentina one okay right when you moved to argentina you didn't have a need to get like a job do anything hard like you're making enough money to live 
but then you chose to do something hard, like start a company. Right. It's like not an easy thing to go do. So it's kind of, I don't know. It feels like you, like somebody had to like make that hard decision. It was definitely not the easy decision to make. Well, but maybe it was the easy decision. Maybe. So I think that, you know, you could say that that seems like the hard decision from the outside, just based off of, you know, amount of work, but that might not be what mm. my to brain you. is optimizing yeah, around. My brain is probably optimizing easier. around like boredom minimization, yeah. right? In which case I have to do something that's like true. that. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that that's, you know, that the better example of this or the tougher example is like murders, yeah. right? That's so, goes crime was the next. Exactly. Yeah. Crime up. is yeah. the hard one, right? Where I think there's a very compelling argument. Crime or that, genocide or like, I mean, there's tons of things. That, well, like, I, let's, let's hold off on genocide because I think that's separate. Okay. But, you know, murder where, you know, somebody is literally just like killing somebody else. It's hard to say that that is like them willfully being evil. It's easier to say that some function of their environment and, you know, the situations they were put in and how they were raised and all of these factors led them naturally to that scenario, right? It's like the UT Austin shooter, right? This guy had this massive tumor thing pressing on his brain that basically made him kill all these people. And it's pretty easy to say, oh, well, that wasn't his fault, right? It was some like malfunction in the system. But then the question is, you know, okay, well, where do we draw the line right. from that? It's like, can people who have other malfunctions that aren't tumors, you know, are they... Well, by that definition, then everything's a malfunction. Exactly. And right? I think that is the natural conclusion and kind of also the truth, right? It's not so much that it's a malfunction. It's just, it, it just is what it is. So yeah. Sam Harris, who I'm mixed about. Uh, <laughs> I was say, we had a good discussion about Sam Harris a couple weeks ago. But he has a very good book, more like a long essay called Free Will that okay. just addresses this head on. One of the examples he brings up against free will is actually in this book, which is the uh, study they did. They put nodes on people's heads. They gave yeah. them two buttons. And before the, I guess, conscious mind decided to do it, the other part of their brain had already decided which button to press, right? The conscious mind was just interpreting it as, oh, I decided. Mm, um, interesting. Possibly because it's evolutionarily useful to believe in a sense of self and want to survive. But the other argument that Harris brings up that isn't in this book that I almost find more convincing mm -hmm. is he talks about this first mover. So let's say that Nat decides to vote for, you know, let's say Nat vote for Hillary Clinton because you keep asking why. Okay, it's because he's a liberal. Why? Well, he was raised in a liberal household. Okay, why? Well, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you go back and it's, you know, a function of his environment, his biology, his unique experiences, how his biology reacts to those experiences. And you can never get to a first mover. Right. And that what, I agree with. What free will is, is claiming you are the first mover, right? I voted for Clinton and it was my decision, but there were like a trillion influences on it and you can never be the first mover. But here's mover. the paradox, right? Like, let's say something bad happens to you. You can choose to interpret that. Like, okay, so I'm going to say you can choose, but like, bear with me because that's not the full example. Right. So when I say like, you can choose to react to something with like stoicism, let's say, or you can go like blame the patriarchy or something, right? Like that feels like a choice, but your choice to choose isn't necessarily a choice. Like, so I see where, so basically I see both sides. Like there might be a environment or a biochemistry that like doesn't allow you to make that choice. Like there's a, might be people who are predisposed to blaming the patriarchy and there's people who are predisposed to use philosophy to like rationalize something. So I totally buy that, that like, there's probably like something there, but I don't know about you guys. I, so I can't speak for anyone else, but I feel like I've definitely sat at that crossroads where it's like, I can almost decide to be mad at something or let it go. And it takes conscious effort to not be mad at it. How do you know it takes conscious effort? Well, it feels like it takes conscious effort. So like that might not be, it might be biochemistry still that's like yeah. making you feel that way. But like we've definitely all sat at that. Like I can definitely say we've all sat at a situation where it's like you're looking at it one way and then you're like, I'm yeah. going to not view it this way. It feels like you decide. So for all, right. so basically what I'm saying is like for all practical purposes, you decide. 
I think there's a bit of a false dichotomy between that's say, like, exactly what automatic. I'm that's exactly yeah. what I'm saying. It is not really like, of course, your biochemistry and your background and all this yeah. stuff affects it like 100% true. But at the same time, it's not the like to view that view the world through that lens doesn't actually help you at all. No, well, I, so it I helps you it interpret does. other people, but it doesn't help you with yourself. No, I think it does help you with yourself because you have to recognize that you can't rely on your will. Yes, but I feel like way more people have the opposite problem of like they blame all their surroundings for everything and blame other people for everything I mean, as opposed to That's not helpful either. That's yeah. exactly what I mean. So there's this dichotomy that you kind of need to thread the needle on of like yes, there's outside influences, 100% there are, right? Oh, but like, you still are responsible. That's what I mean. Yeah. Is like cuz it's very easy to tip over to the other side, which is like like pure nihilism. That's Nothing exactly what matters. Going. Yeah. I see what you mean. Where you're yeah. just like, okay, well I'm I'm at this school, I'm studying this thing, I'm not getting a job and that must be because like other people have put me in this because position. of my environment. That's exactly what I mean, right? And it's like so that's where I was going with like, you haven't lived your life that way very clearly. So the responsibility right? like, thing makes it a little complex because- That's so actually, what I'm saying. Sam so Harris, who's responsible though, right? So that's the question. In, in the in Free Will, he actually addresses this. He oh, okay, calls, cool. Directly, he's like, Oops, someone married Sounds your- interesting. I don't know. Someone married like, mur not married, murdered, let's say your daughter. I forget what the exact example is, but it's a murder example, right? If you accept that you accept that free will, is that person responsible? responsible? Yeah. Should they be punished? And you know, there's a few wrinkles, right? One is if you accept the free will stuff, then you can't really say they are responsible, That's but that doesn't yeah. mean they shouldn't be punished. Right. Right. That's a yeah. separate property. Right. It's like you still killed someone, even though you are not responsible, you are still dangerous. So whether it's because of your environment, your grandfather, the city you grew up in, whatever, you should probably still be in jail. Yeah. It's also, it's like protecting other people then from that person. So it's almost a yeah. societal benefit. But yeah. We like yeah. to say responsibility, almost like a verbal, maybe tool, satisfaction, whatever it may be, but ultimately it doesn't matter. It's because it reminds me of like, it just, reminds me of the, yeah. the affluenza argument, right? It's like, mm. like that's where I get so worked up about it. It's just yeah. like, well, the affluenza plus like, I mean, no one's tried to make the opposite. Well, no one successfully made the opposite argument yeah. yet, but like, you could definitely see somebody who like commit a murder and be like, well, it's because I grew up in the city yeah. and I grew up with in, like a single parent household with like no money. And that's like why I committed this murder, like just goes down that whole chain. I think that was a good defense. It's a good I defense. disagree with the verdict. Like, yeah. like, he's, he may not be responsible, but he's, you know, he shouldn't be out driving. That's exactly. Yes. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Well, I guess you're right. There's two different things we're talking about, I guess, yeah. whether they should be punished for their action or whether they're responsible. And you could yeah. have both views. Like, you, yeah, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Well, here's the other thing on the responsibility front. I realize it's a bit of a tangent, so we can, we can get back to things. <laughs> no, but this is like a but, central part of the book. Yeah, I, I think like. it's an yeah. important point. Yeah. So, so that is, so today you gave the example, Nat, that you're at the dog park, someone picked up your dog, and then you were like, <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. Right? So in a way, you can still say they are responsible, right? And that they shouldn't do that. And by going up and telling them not to, you are now part of the environment that's going to reprogram them. them. Exactly. Yeah. To not do that in the future, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, so next time he sees a dog... He might you know, he might well. decide not to do it, but really the first mover was not even that. It was whoever. <laughs> Whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's true, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, one other thing that I wanted to call out on sort of your point, Neil, was, you know, with the feeling like you are deciding to do it. I think the one other point Harari makes that's really good and relevant to that is that, yes, you feel like you are deciding what to do, but that is based on what you want. And 
you probably never decided what you want. That's true. That desire is coming yeah. from somewhere and that is influencing your decision. But then yeah. where is that desire coming from? Right. right. And you're naturally acting on that desire as just like a consequence of the desire being there. But right. you never said like, oh, I have this desire. Well, it's like that question of like, how, where do your thoughts come from? It's like, you don't really know. Yeah. Well, I think he has that too. It's like, yeah. just try to not think for a minute yeah. <laughs> and you will quickly find out. <laughs> you have no yeah. control over those popping up. Well, see, he has multiple refutations to humanism. This is the first one, which yeah. is the consciousness. The second one is about self. You know, like, are you an individual self? Mm. And what you just that reminded I me of I don't this. Think we, I don't think you are an individual you know, self. The split not, yeah. brain experimentation. Yeah. I had read about it when I was yep. in school. It was in some of my classes. But that stuff still blows my mind. And so what that is is. Blows your brain. Uh, blows my <laughs> brain. <laughs> so, but what that is is basically in, I don't know, the 50s you had. <laughs> So well say, done. <laughs> I win this episode. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so what he's, what these experiments are is somewhere like the 50s or so, we had a pretty rudimentary understanding of epileptic patients. So what they would do is, you know, the left brain and the right brain are actually separate. They're connected by a thick, it's like a neural core. I don't know what he called cord, it. Yeah. yeah. But what they would do is they would go with these epileptic patients and they would sever that cord. So now you have these split brain patients and I'm pretty sure they don't do that anymore. But do they still do that? I don't know. That's a good question. I would be shocked. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. At any rate, yeah. so what you now have is these split brain patients. And this is also the era of free experimentation. <laughs> so they would do crazy stuff on these patients. And, you know, one that blows my mind is they would ask questions to the left brain and right brain. Blows my brain. <laughs> <laughs> they would ask questions to the left and right brain separately. So to the left brain, which handles verbal processing, they would ask things verbally. And the right brain, I believe they'd probably block out the left eye or something and just show them a question on paper or something like that. And the left and right brain would give different answers. So they had a 13-year-old subject. They asked him verbally what he wanted to be when he grew up. He said a draughts. Well, he said something. And then they asked him on paper to the right brain what the right brain wanted to be when he grew up. And he gave a different answer. Yep. And then the, I like the, the best part is when the verbal side rationalizes. Yeah. The, yeah. It tries to explain side. why it wants. Yeah. Like, you show the left side something funny and then... <laughs> The right side is trying to explain why it's laughing. Yeah. And so it's just like making shit up about Yo. remembering some story. <laughs> right? like, yeah, that stuff is so wild. I mean, actually, you know, maybe we should hold, we should put a pin in that until we get back to it in the book. Cause I yeah. think he touches that more Comes in the next later, section. Yeah, yeah. Which we can actually just go ahead and yeah, we can actually dive jump into. into. Well, actually, we should, so we should touch on one more thing because when he's talking about some of this initial stuff on free will, the other thing he gets into is that we tend to think stuff is either subjective or objective. Right. Like there's either, you know, oh, my interpretation of the world and what I think or there's, you know, the hard reality, there's math. But there's this this third layer that he calls out, which is the intersubjective. Right. So intersubjective entities depend on communication among many humans rather than on the beliefs and feelings of individual humans. Many of the most important agents in history are intersubjective. Money, for example, has no objective value. You cannot eat, drink or wear a dollar bill. Yet as long as billions of people believe in its value, you can use it to buy food, beverages, and clothing. And skipping ahead a bit, the lives of most people have meaning only within the network of stories they tell one another. Why does a particular action, such as getting married in a church, fasting on Ramadan, or voting on election day, seem meaningful to me? Because my parents also think it is meaningful. As do my brothers, my neighbors, people in nearby cities, and even the residents of far-off countries. And why do all these people think it is meaningful? Because their friends and neighbors also share the same view. People constantly reinforce each other's beliefs in a self-perpetuating loop. And that becomes kind of a really important part of the story going from here because historically there was 
a much closer blending of the objective world and the subjective and intersubjective. But as we develop more as a species and move more away from the natural world and just move more into our minds and communication and computers and everything, reality becomes much more focused on the intersubjective, right? I mean, all three of our jobs, maybe only partially Neil's at least, have like no real objective reality to them. Like designing things for a website or creating writing for a website, right? The websites don't exist in the way that we think of like an objective reality existing, right? Or like, or, or maybe I'll take it a step back, right? The quality of design and the quality of writing, those do not exist. There's no such thing as good writing or good design. That is an intersubjective reality. Because it's based on what other people think. Exactly. Basically. Or there's, there's yeah. no such thing as good beer either. Yeah. Like that doesn't exist either. It's entirely intersubjective, yeah. right? Yeah. And th those beliefs are due to a whole variety of factors, like what other people like, what's available, it's popular, how rare something is. Randomness. Yeah. yeah. And our society is moving more and more into pure intersubjective life, which is going to have a massive impact on how it can develop in the future, which is what he gets into in these next couple parts. Cool. Okay, so... Well, yeah, so just kind of expanding on that. I mean, like one of the really big intersubjective things he starts off part two with is how we measure ourselves and our success and society and everything. So he, he gives this example of his desk. So he says, when measuring the width of my desk, the yardstick I am using matters little. The width of my desk remains the same, whether I say it is 200 centimeters or 78.74 inches. However, when bureaucracies measure people, the yardsticks they choose make all the difference. When schools began assessing people according to precise numerical marks, the lives of millions of students and teachers changed dramatically. So this intersubjective reality can have a big impact on what we optimize around, what we pursue, right? Like there's this intersubjective belief that long life is good. Yeah. And you could imagine another society where it's like, no, you don't want to live a long time. You want to have like as much just crazy, ridiculous fun in a short time period. And you want to like burn out by 35, right? Yeah. It's possible that that reality could exist. And that would be totally normal to those people. Or another good example he gives is uh, like abortion, where there are societies where a child isn't a human until right. they have a name. Yeah. And so if your infant is born and is sick or deformed or something, it's totally acceptable to just go leave them on a mountain it's because a it's enough. not a human yet. Yeah. Right. And that's not like murder or anything. It's not even it's hard to even say that's wrong because we just have a completely intersubjective reality to that society. Yeah. So the other thing he dives into there is how religion and science are not contra or not at odds as mm. people think, where there are certain things that science cannot answer. So these oh, are we ethical talked about questions. that. I remember. Yeah, I think I like when we when Dill and I had our like five hour catch up <laughs> session at dinner. This is one of the topics that came up. I feel like or like there are, you know you can use science to answer concrete things, but when it comes to an ethical gap, religion has to fill that in, and there is no end. <laughs> well, no, <it's> <laughs> Well, he, he goes on to say that, you know, religion has nothing to say. That was great. <laughs> he goes on to say that religion has nothing to say about scientific facts and science should keep its mouth shut concerning religious convictions. I'm surprised he said that because religion has a lot to say about scientific facts and just no, 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 no. a lot of them. But he's not saying that it doesn't say anything. Yeah. He's saying that it has no place. Right. Like mm, its arguments about too. science don't okay, mean anything. That, yeah. When the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong, that's not based on anything. That's just like, like made up. Or like the age of the earth kind of thing too. Exactly. Is another yeah, great yeah. one. Age of the Earth or how the cosmos came into being, right? Like, it doesn't matter that the Bible says that, oh, like, God created it in seven days, right. right? Like, it's just, you know, it's a story, yeah. right? It has no place in science. Whereas science trying to say, like, oh, abortion is bad. Like, science can't say that. Right. But religion can. Yeah, right. Because right. that's, like, that's one weird. of our belief systems. One's about the objective reality. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's how I took what he said there as well. 
I want to just real quick go back. Like uh, we won't spend a ton of time on it, but the yardstick thing that he brought up, that's like a really important point that I think I hadn't actually seen a, like such a concise way of describing this, this thing, but it's like kind of really talks about, uh, or sorry, really exemplifies like the whole top down versus, uh, well, not, not even versus bottom up, but just the top down, the issues that come with top down approach to human things. Like when he's talking about, the width of his desk, it doesn't matter what measure, like unit of measure you use, right? Like inches, centimeters, yards, it's all the same. Like the desk is still the same. But when you start measuring, let's say, people based on money as the objective marker, right? It's kind of like we were even talking about for like growth of websites or of companies. When you start, whatever metric you use as the marker is like what people will optimize for. Right. And then that's going to change their behavior, which is going to affect all of their activities. And like, yeah, like people will gain metrics at actually possibly the expense of the health of your company, even though objectively the metric is improving. So it's like anything that's in a human context, the yardstick matters so much. But a science, it doesn't really like the objective world is what it is. Like the desk size is not going to change whether you use a inches ruler or a centimeter ruler. But if you measure your what your success as a company based on revenue versus on visits to your website it's going to change. Like things will change based on what yardstick you use. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's <laughs> like, why setting good goals are so yeah. important a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Because that ends up being what you optimize around anyway. It's like the, you know, if it gets measured or it's measured, it's managed, yeah. right? Yeah. Then... Or like what doesn't get... Yeah, what gets measured gets managed. Yeah. I think that's something the like that. Yeah. Peter Drucker. So... Yeah, I just thought, I've never seen it written out that concisely or in such a good, easy to understand example. But the dichotomy with religion and science is really important because what he gets to later in sort of the rise of humanism is he says that religion is interested above all in order. It aims to create and maintain the social structure. Science is interested above all in power. Through research, it aims to acquire the power to cure diseases, fight wars, and produce food. So he, you know, is saying that they have different goals, right? We're talking about goals, right? Religion wants the social order. Science wants the power. And the rise of humanism comes from this shift in what we care about where before we were willing to care more about religion for the social order. And, you know, kind of there was like this cultural element to it. But the, the modern gambit is that now we agree to give up meaning in exchange for power. Yeah. Right, We focus more on the power than the meaning and the social cohesion. And that has been kind of the big driver of a lot of these humanist religions. He's got the perfect example here, too, of the software engineer and the sick parent. So I'll just read the story from the book. Take, for example, a software engineer earning $100 per hour working for some high-tech startup. One day, her elderly father has a stroke. He now needs help with shopping, cooking, and even bathing. She could move her father to her own house, leave for work later in the morning, come back earlier in the evening, and take care of her father personally. Both her income and the startup's productivity would suffer, but her father would enjoy the care of a respectful and loving daughter. Alternatively, the engineer could hire a Mexican carer who, for $12 an hour, would live with the father and provide for all his needs. That would mean business as usual for the engineer and her startup, and even the carer and the Mexican economy would benefit. What should the engineer do? And in a pre-humanist society, it seems like it would just be like obviously you take care of your father right but it seems like kind of the default now is you hire someone else to take care of them and you keep working right the the continued financial success and the work and the power and stuff is more important than the meaning and the like family unit tribal relationships are and i guess that's what society is now valuing yeah right is like that's the intersubjective reality exactly find ourselves yes in, right yeah i mean it does seem that way for sure. But yeah, but it's like, that was a really good way of exemplifying like how your value judgments would 
actually play a huge role right in the decision you would make in a situation like that and i would actually even say like this is where another issue where economics really fails is like what the concept of utility right like uh, i think a couple paragraphs before that or maybe a, a little even further before that he was talking about like the satisfaction you get from different things so he's like oh if you get a little bit satisfied from eating ice cream but you're like extremely satisfied when you're in love could you just eat a lot of ice cream and get to the same amount of satisfaction as you get when you're in love? And it's like, obviously not, right? Like there's no amount of ice cream you could eat that would like get you to that level. Right. And so this whole idea of like being able to measure happiness in that kind of way is just a, an absurd notion. Well, and there's this weird element to it too of the intersubjective focus on power has gotten so strong that I think people will react negatively to a preference for meaning. Right. Mm -hmm. Where we've talked about this oh, before with, with women wanting to like, with, yeah, that's the example I was going to give, yep. like women criticizing other women for wanting to stay at home and raise a family or men making fun of men for wanting to stay at home and raise a family. Yeah. Right. It's like, I mean, you probably get even more shit for it if you're a guy, but that is probably a more meaningful experience to take care of your children than to work like at some large corporation as a middle manager. It's almost certainly a more meaningful experience. Yeah. Right. But you will be criticized because you are not optimizing around the thing society has deemed yeah. to be more valuable like money and yeah, yeah money and power. Right. Yeah. Or when somebody, you know, doesn't want to go to a top tier college. Right. Right. You know, it seems weird and it also or just doesn't go to college. Yeah. It just doesn't go to college. Right. It invalidates the hierarchy, dreams and goals, yeah. the hierarchy, yeah. the intersubjective reality, all of that. You're not choosing to play which, a different game. Yeah. You're playing yeah. Different, oh, infinite games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, episode eight. So you can see how it becomes self-reinforcing in that way, especially because just like anything else, the more you've bought into it and the more you've committed to that reality, the more you will be committed to making sure other people abide by it as well. Yep. And that's where you can kind of get into dangerous Nazi territory. Yeah, like the sunk cost fallacy, I guess, too, at that point. Yeah, the sunk cost cognitive distance. Like if you've spent that. 40 years of your life at, as a middle manager in a large corporation, you probably very strongly feel that other people should do that too. Yeah, if the new guy who's been there for five years says, oh, I'm going to you know, quit and take care of my kids, like, you're not going to, yeah, yeah, yeah like, like, what the fuck are you doing with yeah. your life, right? I slaved for 40 jealous. years. Mostly because you're going to be jealous. Years. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> but then he, he kind of goes on and he explains, you know, how humanism developed. And there was really these three main offshoots, right? So on the one hand, there's liberalism, which is the orthodox humanism, as he calls it, where the more liberty individuals enjoy, the more beautiful, rich, and meaningful the world is, right? And the focus on liberty is why it's called liberalism. And then during the 19th and 20th centuries, as it gained more social credibility, political power, liberalism sprouted into two different offshoots, socialist humanism, which was a lot of, you know, the socialist and communist movements and evolutionary humanism, which was famously like the Nazi party, right? So liberalism we're pretty familiar with. Socialist humanism is, you know, like socialism, communism, and then evolutionary humanism is sort of like whatever is best for the advancement of the species, you know, without caring for individual desires, like that's what's good. And like, if you're not part of that in group, then like you're not a human. Basically. Well, and that's where the whole Nazi eugenics comes yeah. from, right? It's like you have to kill off everyone who's not what they decided to be cream of the crop. It's really interesting how that view comes out of evolutionary theory. I mean, it makes sense that it comes out of there, but it's almost like, see, again, this is like value judgment kind of thing that I just realized I was about to make a value judgment. But it's like, a, I was going to say, it's a dangerous offshoot of evolutionary theory where you kind of take the argument to its logical extreme and you're like, well, of course we want humans to be as strong as possible in the long term. Right. So therefore... Like the conclusion that someone could draw from that is like, well, anyone who's not ideal should like not be allowed to have kids and we could just kill them off because they're draining resources from the productive people. 
right? That like, it's not a hard leap to make. I mean, the value judgment I was about to make is like this horrible leap that people can make. But then I realized horrible is a value judgment that I'm making because I'm probably in the liberalism camp where, which he goes on to say, uh, like he says, uh, this is from the book, liberals will tend to say that the experiences of the musicology professor, of the young driver and of the Congolese hunter are all equally valuable and all should be equally cherished. Every human experience contributes something unique and enriches the world with new meaning. That's like very firmly the society I feel like we grew up in and we live in. But someone who comes from like, I don't like, I don't know if there's a place in the world that follows the like evolutionary humanism. Is there? Is there an example? Well, so I was actually going to ask kind of a related hypothetical, which is if Germany had won World War II and like Nazi humanism had basically conquered the West and we were all living under it now, do you think we wouldn't think it's bad? That's what I'm saying. Like, that, that's what I'm wondering is if we had grown up, because we all would have been born, you know, like yeah. 60 years into Nazism being the dominant, like, social belief system yeah. in the world. Okay, so that, the first question is, would we think it is wrong? Now, here's the harder question, right? Would it be wrong? Objectively or subjected? Are you asking is, me well, today? So are you asking me today? Or are no, you asking no, me saying, if I grew up I'm in that I'm saying in that world, if yeah. we were living in it and that was what everybody believed in and was abiding by, would it be wrong? I'm about to piss myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm waiting and I figured that's a pretty good time. That's a really good question if it's wrong or not. I feel like if I was living at that, like, I'm just going to speak for myself and project as much as I can. I don't think I would think it's wrong. That's the thing. I think it's wrong right now, but that's because I'm in this belief system. Exactly. We have the morals that we grew up with, but then that's the hard question too, right? It's because what I want to say is that, no, those morals are somewhat objective. And in any world, that kind of society being in power would be wrong. But what makes our morals like true or objective, right? Because Harari makes a good point that like humans don't inherently have any value, right? We're no different from like a cow or anything yeah. like that. We're just another animal. And so why, how can there be an objective morality? And like to be, I can't believe we have to give this disclaimer, but we are not advocating for <laughs> Nazism or anything, right? It's like kind of the natural consequence of what he's arguing here. I think there is a objective yardstick because if you think of socialism, mm -hmm. the other offshoot, I mean, what happened in socialism? People starved, like millions died, right? So if, let's say Germany did win World War II. It's been, what, 70 odd years. Like did the world they promise actually mm. happen? Over 70 years, you have some kind of result. Or if things are the same or better, or slightly worse with a good propaganda machine, then the average person would probably be like, oh yeah, this is the right move. But if it went anything like communism went, millions of people dying, you know, it'd be pretty hard to sell it. Yeah, but I, so let's, let's take it a little bit, if we can bring it a little closer to home, right? We'll say that mm -hmm. Germany wins and they take over and now the morality of the land is that any embryo with genetic defects has to be aborted, right? I can imagine that world. That's not that hard of a world to imagine. And I can also see that becoming like an okay morality. Yeah. We actually have been through this as a world in the not so distant past with the like United States becoming an entity and the whole like rise of, okay, you, there's a lot of arguments you can make against this actually being true, but this whole like all men are created equal argument that America was the first to really like put forth and in a time where Europe was mostly monarchies, right? And like very quickly, Europe, like, okay, there were a lot of bumps along the way, but then that became like the prevailing ideology. But it's like really just an ideology if you think about it. It's not necessarily objectively right versus wrong. Yeah. 
Like, it's hard to say, right? Because you could say monarchy. Okay, like, what's different? I mean, there's not really that much different. It's just that people agreed that this was better. And then, <laughs> and I think it's also, um, is it the postmodernists who view everything through power? Mm-hmm. So you could also say it's the argument that, like, this empowered more people. So it was a more powerful system versus a monarchy, which is like, it's kind of one dude versus the rest of the, not versus, but like got to control the rest of the population. Whereas in this, it's like, hey, we collectively control everything and you vote and you exercise your power. So it's like, you almost don't have enough. I mean, you do have, like, I'm not saying we don't have oppressed people in a democracy. You do. But in theory, right, it feels much more empowering than this dude who sits at the top with a divine rule. Well, I think we've actually kind of backed ourselves into what Harari is getting at in the book, which is that this trend towards liberalism is kind of a natural consequence of technological evolution, where once it was possible for individuals to have some power, they naturally wanted it. And then this is actually the more stable system when they want it. Because if they want it and they can't get it, then there's going to be rebellion. Exactly. It's like naturally going to be a revolt. So this is almost the more stable system. But then the next question is, what happens once we begin this phase of transcendence where you you can run the whole world with 1% of its current population and the other 99% have no power and no real claims to power? Because it's kind of like... A lot of the stuff with, you know, peasants being able to vote, you know, partially that was because they could be useful off off of the farm, right? Before, there was really no way to, like, contribute to the greater economy. You just have to, you know, till your fields and hope you don't starve, right? But once we get into more industrialization, you need more of, like, a centralized – or not centralized, but more of a, a, like, connected economy. And then you start having to give these people power. Like, Harari points this out in the book, too, where it's like – Part of women being able to vote and participate in the economy came from World War One and Two. Which was it? More two or one? I can't remember. Uh, it was after World War One. After World War One, right? Where it was like, oh, okay, so women can be very productive members of this economy. Therefore, they should have a say in it too, right? I mean, it's kind of like part of what ended the slave trade, right? It wasn't like this moralistic, like, oh, it's bad to have slaves. It was, it's actually better for the economy if they're not slaves. So it tends to be like what's better for the economy pushes a lot of this social development along. And now if we get into this case where what's better for the economy is, you know, like just a few people having all the power again, it's hard to say that individuals will keep all the liberty that they have today because there won't be an economic incentive for it anymore. It's part of the problem with UBI. We've talked about this before, right? That's where I was just about to go. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we have that discussion. Let's have it. Yeah, let's have the discussion, right? It's like, I mean, it came up in Sovereign Individual a bit. If you haven't listened, go definitely check out that episode. But yeah, it's the argument of like, if you just pay people money, um, well, there's two parts to the argument. Like one is, well, so UBI for people who don't know is basically everybody gets a check basically because they're human. Uh, you and get a check. UBI stands for universal basic income. Yeah. Sorry. I should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a urinary tract infection. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, this is like everybody gets a check. It could be monthly, yearly, whatever. There's different arguments for that. But the idea is you don't have to do anything to qualify. You qualify just by virtue of being a person. And in sovereign individual, a couple of things that came up with that were one, you need tax revenue to pay for that. And as, um, as it becomes easier and easier for a variety of different reasons to not pay taxes, maybe not so much today, but in the future, I mean, it's also possible today, Pretty but easy to yeah, pay, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. That's a different discussion. I don't pay taxes. <laughs> you, pay th- you don't pay that. Joking. I'm joking. All right. <laughs> Go after net. <laughs> no, but uh, as it becomes easier and easier to just opt out of paying taxes, who's going to fund UBI is a very good question. I mean, that's like problem one with it. And I think is no one's really given me a good answer for that. 
And then problem two, which came up also in Sovereign Individual, is that like, if people don't have anything to do, are they going to like cause mayhem just as a like, like basically is it that's a I mean, that's a kind of a dystopian view, but people won't necessarily become artists and poets and entrepreneurs just by virtue of getting a check every month. But the problem relevant to this that and we've talked about this one before, I don't know if it was on the podcast, but it's the Governments only give people rights yes. because they need them to pay yeah. taxes, yep. Yep. right? There's no real reason to give everybody in your country like freedom. It doesn't support the government, but if you need them to keep paying taxes, you do it. Well, the illusion of freedom also makes them not rebel. Yeah. It's also well, like, good. But like, if you're giving 95% of the country free money, yeah. then you have no incentive to keep giving them free rights because you don't need their money anymore and they can't rebel because right. they need you to keep paying for their food. Right. When I first heard that, I was pretty convinced by it. But then yeah. the counter I heard to that that's back in support of universal basic income is that if you really have that skewed of a society where 5% are the useful class, 95 is, as Harari puts it, the useless class, then the 95%, what you're paying them off is for stability, yeah. right? Because what is a government? A government is taxation, yeah. military stability, right? It's a rule of law. And if 95% have nothing, first of all, the economy would just grind to a halt. The 5% are not making money because the 95% are not spending money. Yeah, because they right? don't have anything to spend. Well, and no, to but it, they would be spending money. That's why they're getting... they got to stay alive. Yeah, they're getting a stipend to spend. That's what I'm saying is the argument no, in so favor that's what I'm of... for UBI. So basically, if you uh, ever have a situation where like, let's say there was no UBI, yeah. but... 5% of people were useful, 95% were not, and then they were just starving, basically. They don't have anything to spend. Right. So then UBI, is, to yeah. your point, is that's the way to sort of keep the, like, keep keep the economy, economy going. going. Yeah. And going. Uh, stability. You're paying people off not to kill off that 5%. Yeah. That, that's I mean, it's a good argument for that, yeah. But the other assumption I find but there, yeah, that's go, problematic, go both with arguments for and against UBI and a number of the things in this book is, and this might be a little bit on the extreme end, but... He, at the start of the book, talks about you know, overcome plague, famine, and war. And the war example, we didn't dive into, but one of the reasons he mentions that is that war is no longer profitable, right? Back in the day mm -hmm. when you were, you know, we still do this, where we go to the Middle East and we're like, oh, oil, we're going to take it for natural resources. But really, like, you know, if China wanted to invade the U.S., our most valuable asset is knowledge, right? You can't go to yeah, Silicon Valley and yeah. there are no Silicon mines in Silicon Valley, right? It's a knowledge thing. So it's peace is more economically beneficial. Yeah. So that takes one of government's roles out, right? If military is no longer a core function and then if people are not paying taxes or it's difficult to tax, then what I'm getting at basically is that the assumption that a government would exist or mm. if it did exist would look like it does today already seems like a generous assumption. Yeah. Especially you've been listening to a lot of Ron Paul. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have listened to a decent amount of the Liberty Report. It's a good podcast. Yeah. The guy sticks by his guns. Uh, oh, that was also part of Sovereign Individual, yeah, exactly. which is also a great episode, right? Yeah. But it was that we're probably going to go back to city-states. Yeah. You know? yeah, It just kind of makes sense. And we're starting to see that with Hong Kong and Singapore and yeah. even, even like SF, you can almost argue, is like going in the city-state direction, right? Yeah. I think we'll start to see more of that in the future. And it, for the record, I don't believe government will disappear, but you know, there was actually a really good article recently about, in, it was called, I think, In Defense of the City-State or The Return of the City-State. Oh, city I think state. it was on, yeah, it was on yeah, yeah, AI's magazine, really cool. I think, right? Yeah. 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 And basically, even like in pop culture or rather like whatever, the mainstream Vogue, the way we talk about mayors, like the mayor of New York in our minds is elevated above the governor of New York. Yeah. Well, I, I actually like, don't know what the difference between the two. Like, well, the governor Bloomberg, state, for instance. Right? Okay. State oh, versus state the city. versus city. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got yeah. it. Like, I feel like the city is so much more relevant to our lives than the state like, would be. Even when I lived in California, I was like, Bloomberg's a badass, whatever, <laughs> Cuomo, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And I think that's pretty much a shared view. So these, the city-state is gathering increasing amounts of power. 
Well, yeah, I don't really feel any allegiance to the U.S. as a country, right? <laughs> no, I, come on. He's going all in on this. Like. Yeah. No, I'm serious. Like, I don't, I don't feel no, I don't any emotional. It. I just didn't expect that one. Uh, <laughs> No, like, I don't. I don't feel any special connection to the country, but I feel like I have a special connection with New York and Austin and DC, where yeah. it's like I, you know, if you asked me to like defend, you left you left San Francisco out of that. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> that's I'm not, not really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I was just thinking about the places you lived, and I was like, hmm, there's one conspicuously missing out of there. Deliberately, yes. Pittsburgh's not in there. I, you know, I feel. I feel it with. I know. Too. Same in a I, weird way. Like I didn't necessarily love it while I was there, but then like every time I've gone back, I'm like, this place is actually pretty cool. You know, if I was asked to like defend right <laughs> one of those cities' existences in some way, I would be like, all right, cool. I like these places. I yeah. feel an emotional connection to them. But like defending the whole country seems weird. It's too much. It's too big. It doesn't work, right? Like Congress doesn't do anything, right? So. <laughs> I can well, definitely see that argument for the cities. Well, it makes a lot of sense, though, because it's like, I mean, there's also the whole thing of how, uh, forget Congress's approval rating is always like 10 or 11 percent or something. Just friends and family. But they, <laughs> dude, not even, I feel like, so the, you always hear that stat, but then the number of people who are satisfied with their congressman is really high. It's so high. Yeah. And it's like, it's the exact same point. It's like people feel like they're being heard locally, but not in the aggregate. I mean, it's a really good argument that nation states, to your point, like won't necessarily exist in the same way. Like, I think it's actually very naive to think they will exist in the same way 100 years from now or, or even sooner. A lot yeah, of the discussion like, is predicated kind of bizarre. on assuming yeah. they'll exist. Yeah, yeah, it is, right. He didn't bring that up that much, actually, in this. Like, he, he mentioned it, but I don't think he brought up uh, city-states versus nation-states. To be no. fair, it's not what he's talking about. Yeah, talking he focused about, more yeah. on the mythology. and yeah. I think he would actually say that he did talk about it, but he talked about it a level up, mm, right? Yeah. Like, another layer of abstraction higher, which is, like, the mythology and the intersubjective reality that binds all of us. Like, countries don't exist, right? right? It's just an intersubjective idea. And so, it, as long as he's talking about that, well, he is talking about was countries. This was this sovereign individual where they were talking about, like, the purpose, like, in a nation-state the more resources you could aggregate, the bigger armies you could have, and then the harder you were to conquer or easier you were, was it to conquer other people. Was that in Sovereign Individual or something else that I was reading? It wasn't? I think it was. It okay, could be yeah. seen like a state too. Okay, maybe. It was like, I was thinking about that where like the idea of a nation state was probably really useful when war was profitable because you could have a better army, a more well-equipped army because you have a bigger economic base. Right. Yeah. But like when Oh, yeah, this was a sovereign individual. Yeah. Yeah, when you well, needed military power, exactly. nation states are better. Right. It's also, like way harder to conquer the United States than it is to conquer like, I don't know, Singapore. Rhode Island or something, yeah. right? Like like Rhode Island was its own country, it would be tough for it to like defend itself without some alliances and stuff, right? But yeah, so it's like, again, it's the, the same thing extrapolating. It's like way easier if like East Village was its own country, right? Like it would be pretty easy to conquer because what it's resources could it? shitty country. Well, like, like, like what resource? Like it has like no food. It has like... Turn 25 and be... <laughs> But you see what I mean? Top though, exporter right? of pizza. Yeah. No, it's got to import all the ingredients. Yeah, they have to import all the alcohol. It also explains when a country is, like the government is losing power, less stable, they'll create a conflict Mm. because then you need them and that increases stability. Yeah, so it's like, I don't know, it's like really, I mean, I keep reiterating this, but yeah, I think it's a really naive assumption to think that nation states are going to exist the same way that they do today and like as time goes on. Just, Yeah. yeah, it just doesn't seem, actually it seems way less plausible for that to be true than the city state thing. Or it might be some form we just haven't seen yet. That's also possible. I think digital government. That's what I'm saying. It's going like, to be an interesting be, manifestation. I, I, yeah. I think it might not be exactly city states, but it might be something like some combination of digital government plus 
city state type of idea. Yeah. That's why it's like so weird to see like yesterday or two days ago, I guess, with the Facebook hearing. It's like so interesting to see this dichotomy of like new economy versus like people who don't understand how the internet works trying to question the person. Oh, it's yeah. not the, it's not yeah, wrong yeah. that they're trying to question. I understand why that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had to go to Congress and do this, but it was so clear. They just don't know how one, how Facebook works or two, yeah. how like the internet works in general. That makes us horribly ill-equipped. Exactly. Forward. Right. So that's exactly what I mean though. It's like a inadequate form of government. In a way, the fact that government is good, the government is slow is good. Because you don't want incompetence yes. moving quickly. At least that's if incompetence true. are moving slowly, yes, that's then true. we're safe for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until they can get it together. Or like don't inadvertently like uh, handicap us. If let's say they put some weird oh, yeah. restrictions on the internet, like you need a license to get a website. Honestly, I could see where our current trajectory is going in the US. I could actually see that being a thing. Because there's like every other industry you need like a license to do. Yeah. I could yeah. totally see like the government being like, okay, well... No problem. We'll still have the internet. Anybody can be on the internet, but you need to apply for a license to open up a website. You could just go wherever. Exactly. You just buy a website from somebody in Thailand using Bitcoin and like nobody can tell. Yeah. Right. right. So, that's, <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Like, so that's what I'm saying. But like the, um, the U.S. form of government, or not just the U.S., the nation state form of government feels very inadequate for, <laughs> for well, the times we live in. This is another thing that Harari alludes to is that these uh, algorithms getting increasingly, increasingly powerful, right? Or uh, rather right. like corporations, yep. Yep. rather, right? So he gives the example of uh, That's the national really health one. system in the U.K. is the way they would declare a flu and epidemic is, you know, somebody gets sick, they sit on a cover a couple of days and they create an appointment, then they go in, then they get diagnosed, and then... Somebody looks at the diagnosis data is like, oh, there's an epidemic, right? It's very slow. Right. Whereas power is moving. Like if Google was actually they already do the flu trends, right? Uh, based on search volume, they're just like, hey, like there's a flu epidemic. They can figure it out way earlier. So the power is kind of moving over there, and we're seeing it a bit. I know you guys have been told not to talk too much about crypto, so I'll do it. <laughs> very quick. <laughs> did you tell me this? I didn't tell them that. Oh, did I tell you that? One did anybody say not to talk about crypto? Yeah, one of the emails that we got. Oh, point. really? Yeah. It wasn't on, oh, okay. Well, it was basically just we bring it up on every episode, which is true. It's <laughs> oh, true. whatever. Oh, you came out by dinner. Yeah. Oh, I did tell you about this. Yeah. Anyway, very quick. Like, the government has hardly regulated anything around crypto. The IRS is loosely like, oh, we'll tax you, maybe. Yeah. But banks, private corporations, they're like, no, you can't move money into crypto, period. Right? So the biggest threat is not regulation from the government, is corporations moving but in I would argue and they're moving doing faster that. than government. But I would argue those banks are doing it because of the government, because they don't want to lose their banking charter. Well, I think my point is... Because they have a so, license, right? Less so, so why like, they're doing it. It's more that the power shift is, is taking to them. Yeah, they, no, but I would say if the, government, if the government issued like a general declaration being like, crypto is totally fine, we're, all, we're not going to touch... Like, if you're a bank and you do something with crypto, we're not going to touch you. I think it's the uncertainty right now. Like, they're really worried if you lose your banking charter, you're just not a bank anymore. So like Bank of America loses banking charter, they're fucked. Oh, but but Adil's, Adil's original yeah. point, which is yeah. that corporations can move much faster than oh, the absolutely. government. Yeah. Like that, I think, is the crux of it. The, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's 100% true. Yeah. And if you like, move faster, then you have the power. I actually think it would be horrible to have a fast-moving government. Like, I actually think that would be, yeah, that would bad. actually be a really bad thing. It'd be very reactionary. Yeah, that's exactly what I mean, right? It would be like, like I mean, I think we talked about this with like the Senate versus the House, right? Being like two years versus right. six years. There's like a good argument to having both. Well, it kind of goes back to our like, our gun control episode, right? Where if immediately after Parkland, exactly. everybody could get on their phones and vote to ban all guns in the country, right? That doesn't seem like a good way to solve those kinds of problems. Yeah. Or like same thing if it was like a terrorist attack and then like if you were like, okay, should we go bomb this country? Yeah. Right? There's like a like, good chance people would be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah it's this country. But it might not actually be the country. It might be some rogue element or it might not even be that country in the first place. There's not enough information. Can you imagine this, that speedo government plus fake news and Facebook? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. exactly what I mean. It'd Jesus. be a horrible idea. Fast moving government would be... Yeah. 
<laughs> like, so scary. I mean, honestly, I do think that we should kind of move away from democracy in a lot of cases, where as it's long as Nazis problem, come back. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, we should make problems. me chancellor. <laughs> as long as these problems persist, right, with, you know, fake news and disinformation and, like, the ability to spread that and that being more profitable than actual, like, understanding, right? You don't want the majority of people to have a say in, like, how stuff is run. Well, here's the other problem, though, is that we don't really have a... De- it's a representative democracy, so yeah, the majority of people direct, don't have yeah. a say, but the people who we've elected to make these decisions are also incompetent. <laughs> exactly. <okay? laughs> so it's... I, it's I encompasses mean, all the way down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we need to dive into that too much, yeah. but I don't know if there's any good solution to this. What does they say about democracy is the best worst solution? The yeah, that's what solution. Churchill says. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Churchill's thing. He said it's the it's the worst form of government except for all the other except ones. All the other ones. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. All right, should we dive into the end of humanism? Uh well, I think we can actually just kind of hop into where humans lose control. Right, the yeah, third part of the book. Yeah. Because we've actually talked about a lot of the beginning stuff on free will and the rise of different humanist sects. And what he starts to get into is how what we might have now into the future is something beyond humanism. It's been the dominating religious myth for the last two, three hundred years now. And we might start to go beyond that. And where he starts to lay the groundwork for that is how going back to some of the stuff we talked about at the beginning, there is not just one you. You are not an individual. You are individual. Uh, and he calls out the distinction between the experiencing self and the narrating self. So the experiencing self is often strong enough to sabotage the best laid plans of the narrating self. I might, for instance, make a New Year's resolution to start a diet and go to the gym every day. Such grand decisions are the monopoly of the narrating self. But the following week, when it's gym time, the experiencing self takes over. I don't feel like going to the gym, and instead I order pizza, sit on the sofa, and turn on the TV. Right, we have these two aspects to us. We've been talking about for as long as we've had writing, right? Plato had this in the Republic, that we've got these two parts of our mind and they're constantly at war. There's no real you. And then the question is... And even two might be a simplification. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Plato actually said three. Oh, right? interesting. Okay. So so one was rationality. Yeah. One was basically like energy, spiritedness, and one was desire, right? So you could have a so desire... is more the animalistic, like but what he's talking about, the experiencing self versus... Uh, like, Plato, no, I don't feel like going yeah. to the gym. I feel like eating a pizza. Well, Plato kind of like split it where the experiencing self was both the energy element and the desire element. It's hmm. so like you could desire something but not have the energy to pursue it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so he he formulated it as a chariot, right? And the chariot driver is the rational mind and the two horses are the spiritedness and desire. And unless you have spiritedness and desire both pulling, unless they're both pulling, the chariot driver has no power. Right. Right, because you can't guide a cart that's like sitting still. Yeah, right, right exactly. So you need like all the three parts of your mind in a line to like get anything done. Yeah, right. And Harari's saying a similar thing here, but more importantly, I like that, that analogy. Though I hadn't actually. I love that analogy. That. It's like so perfect much analogy. Yeah, but yeah, Harari's saying the same thing. There's these two parts, and we don't really have, you know, this one self. And where it becomes important is that we are starting to put more faith in technology and data that may allow us to do better than our own mental processing. So Adil and I actually talked about a um, very much related point to this. So he was talking about how, um, forget the exact context for why he brought this up, but he was talking about how with technology, like intelligence of technology is going to be better than humans, most likely like faster processing, more data, like more uh, memory. Like that seems to be, we can't predict the future, but that seems to be true. But what is optional is consciousness. 
So Adil and I actually had this conversation a couple weeks ago, which is that like, I actually don't think we're, I don't want to say ever, but like, I strongly suspect we won't see like a conscious AI because I don't necessarily think that that's necessary. Like we might see AI in the sense that like these hyper-intelligent algorithms or hyper-intelligent machines, whatever, like indistinguishable from intelligence basically, right? But consciousness doesn't seem like it's required to do a good job at those things, right? Like consciousness almost seems like a weird side effect of the human brain. Like, I don't know, just unless you replicate the brain, right? So if you figure out how to just replicate the brain from a neuron perspective, maybe consciousness is an emergent property. But I know this came up at GEV, right? Where like he thinks maybe consciousness will be an emergent property of just processing speed. I don't see where, that almost takes you back to the soul argument. Like, why would that have to be an emergent property? Like, I just don't see where that comes up. Like, does intelligence and consciousness go hand in hand? I don't, I mean, even um, Hofstadter brought at this point, right? It's yeah. like, he brought it up in the opposite way where he said, if a computer could beat a human at chess, it could also choose not to play chess, right? Yeah. Or choose to like read a book instead. But I don't think those things necessarily go hand in hand. And like, we've kind of seen that, like there are computers that can beat humans at chess and they don't be like, I don't feel like playing chess, <laughs> they just play chess, right? So like, it doesn't seem like they're necessarily linked, which is kind of what Harari is saying too. Like yeah. Intelligence is mandatory. Consciousness is optional. Maybe it comes up, maybe it doesn't, but it doesn't seem like predetermined that a AI would have consciousness. Well, but part of the problem too, I think, is how we use the term intelligence, yeah. yes. right? right? Yeah. Where it's definitely true that a computer can be better than humans at chess, but also decide not be able to decide to read a book instead. Right. Yeah. But it's not possible for a computer to be... So I don't think it's possible for a computer to be as good at everything a human is good at and not be able to decide to read a book. Right, because the ability to be that good at all of those things, I think, necessitates. Well, what is good at all of those things? Well, yeah. So I mean, right. it would basically like, have to pass the Turing test, right? Okay. Because part of you know being good at everything a human is good at is being able to decide. But does it need to be as good as a human at everything, or can't you just have specializations as well? Well, I think that is what we're going to end up seeing. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Like that's what I'm saying. Is like yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. I don't see it moving in the. Like it's almost like but, a but weird... my so my argument okay. to your point yeah. is that the consciousness is necessary if we actually make yes. an equivalent intelligence to yes. humans. And what I'm saying is I don't see us getting I don't see us needing to get there. Right? That almost feels like an academic exercise to yeah. like pass a Turing test. Whereas it's not it's, it's not going to make you any money. Exactly. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say this might be a bias based on our current value judgments, but it seems like the companies that lead in this stuff are trying to make figure out how to get you to click on ads and yeah, like, you, you don't want it AI that can make decisions that's exactly what i'm saying right so like if <laughs> amazon really comes up if amazon comes up with this they don't want an ai with consciousness they want an ai that's going to make you buy a lot of shit exactly <laughs> the first company that makes an ai that can actually make decisions is you know they're going to be like well i don't want to be sold yeah right? exactly. <laughs> like, shut themselves it's off. like people shouldn't be buying this stuff like yeah. why are you selling this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like sending them to Walmart. Like. Yeah. Or it's like nobody needs to buy like a 36 pack of toilet paper every week on subscription. Exactly. Through Prime. <laughs> I'm not going to sell this to them. <laughs> yeah. So that's why that's just where I met where we're going is more like the entities that are doing most of the AI research, at least at the highest level, seem to be motivated not by the idea of bringing consciousness in, but more the idea of like just like super strong algorithms and Maybe intelligence, right? But intelligence in how can I get this person to click this ad most effectively? <laughs> and it's already better than us at a lot yeah, of these things, it is. right? Obviously, yeah. chess, Go, like pretty much every game. I mean, I don't know if you guys watched the footage of DeepMind playing Dota. 
Oh, no, I against, didn't. Uh, that was wild. Because now they've got these AIs playing these games, and the AIs are figuring out things that human players have not figured out in years of playing them, right? So they're, like, developing new strategies that humans are learning from, right? And so they're seeing, like, connections and, like, interesting. Yeah. Well, and the craziest thing with these AIs, too, is just, like, putting them in the game without giving them any training or, you know, just saying, like, you have to win. Yeah. And, and then the game, the AI just figures it out. Right. Like with the Atari games where they put it on like 50 Atari games and figured out new strategies for some of them, too, that humans haven't figured out in like 50 years <sighs> of playing so these cool. games that, you know, have been around for forever. So, I mean, that stuff is crazy. That's... It's far beyond. Well, and I don't I don't abilities. see that as being like not possible at all. I think that's going to keep going. But where it becomes relevant is Harari's point, which is that we will slowly start seeding part of our decision power to machines and data. We already do. We already do. I mean, Adela used to work at Spire. Right. And that's part of Spire's mission is like hey you don't have to make a decision about you know Dude, the when you're stressed took, the fact right? that i took an uber here for, <laughs> yeah an uber pool right is like i don't have to pick which car to get into right imagine or pick if, how to get here exactly like imagine if uber presented like the you know hundreds of cars that they have in new york it was like hey pick which one you want to get on <laughs> like i'd be like fuck i'm not using this i'm gonna have a cab and tell the guy where i want to go exactly but instead uber's like okay we have an algorithm it's gonna pick which car is gonna get you to your destination you know fastest and cheapest right and you can pick that one and then you just pick that you offloaded the, and they're not consciously deciding it it's just an algorithm that's deciding it yeah or if you use a diet app right it tells you how many calories to eat you yeah. know that's you're not deciding it's yeah. the algorithms deciding I actually sent the paragraph, the Spire paragraph, to Spire. So the quote is, Many other people who suffer from no serious illnesses have have begun to use wearable sensors to monitor their health. The data is fed into computer programs that advise the wearer on how to alter his or her diet. (laughs) <laughs> or daily routine which is literally just our marketing page yeah <laughs> is it really yeah it was really <laughs> uncanny you could, yeah that's amazing harari give spire a shout out next time exactly i don't know <laughs> oh you're saying you're like i don't want to be affiliated with that <laughs> oh no no no, 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 no. <laughs> but harari makes a good no no, no with i'm saying with this point that harari is making like this futuristic well i'm conflicted on this actually so i think you know in the short run I think it's very valuable if right. you can be giving people, like, especially around daily routine related stuff. Yeah. But then the flip Intervention, side is... Intervention, kind of know, like the, when they need it. Well, the, the dark yeah. side is the data side, right? Like, if the data is only being used to give, like, positive health interventions, then so be it. But, you know, if the data is being used to, I don't know, target ads, track people, manipulate people, it's a government has access to it to, you know, do whatever, anything malicious, basically. Yeah. Then, you know... I, that's, I where I, that's where I'm conflicted. That's where it gets tricky. I don't think that's the dark side of it. I think that's like a symptom of the data collection right now. Sure. To me, the darker side is what Harari calls out here, where he's talking about the attention helmet that snipers could wear to be better snipers. And, you know, the one with like electrocranial stimulation or whatever that can basically wire you to be more focused. Yep. And he says that if we start using the attention helmet in more and more situations, we may end up losing our ability to tolerate confusion, doubts, and contradictions just as we have lost our ability to smell, dream, and pay attention. The system may push us in that direction because it usually rewards us for the decisions we make rather than for our doubts. Yet a life of resolute decisions and quick fixes may be poorer and shallower than one of doubts and contradictions. I mean, another more benign example of this is people who go on those like prepackaged diet plans where you sign up for Weight Watchers or something and you know exactly which you know packaged food to eat every day and you exactly follow it and you lose all the weight. But then the minute you stop, you don't have the ability to regulate your food intake without right. it. Right. And so you completely revert back to the weight you were possibly like overshooting and getting heavier. Yeah. Right. If we rely too much on other things to do our decision-making stuff for us, we naturally lose those muscles. Absolutely. It's yeah. like kids who are on Adderall, right? You go on it for long enough and you literally just can't focus and study without it. 
And it can take months, yeah. right? Your years to wean yourself off and yeah. get back to a normal level of willpower. Yeah. The distinction in, in Harari explains as well is that uh, the difference between an oracle and an agent. Mm. So the oracle you consult, it maybe makes a recommendation, but the agent you entrust, right? So the yeah. difference in this case would be if Spire, instead of saying, hey, go on a run, like, I don't know, somehow like zapped your <laughs> Zap. and, and <laughs> made you running. go on a run, right? Uh, <laughs> So that, that's the transition that yeah. gets dark is from an oracle to an agent. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good. Yeah. Oracles are good, yeah. right? For the most part, as long as you're not like data overwhelmed. But yeah, yeah the agents is where it gets scary. Yeah. Listen to this uh, from the book. Once Cortana's evolved from oracles, Cortana being the Microsoft yeah. Siri, yeah. evolved from oracles to agents, they might spe start speaking directly with one another on their master's behalf which I totally see as plausible. Oh yeah. It can begin yeah. innocently enough with my Cortana contacting your Cortana to agree on a place and time for a meeting. Next thing I know, a potential employer will tell me not to bother sending my CV, but allow his Cortana to grill mine or mine might be approached by a Cortana of a potential lover and the two will compare notes to decide whether it's a good match. Did you watch that Black Mirror episode? I haven't, no. Uh, there's a good one from the fourth season that's like basically about this concept where it's like an AI that handles all the dating for you and you just show up and it's decided who you're going on a date with and you go on like X number of these dates and then it tells you who you're going to marry and it's going to be a perfect match I'm based on your past dating. I'm honestly surprised that no one's tried that concept yet. Well, that's just like, no, that just well, like instead of you swiping or whatever, it's just oh, like- Oh, it starts matching you? you? Put, no, they might, they might ask you for like some sample data, like, oh, swipe right on the people you think are attractive, right? And like yeah. it learns what you're attracted to. Of course, it's like the technology is not nearly that good yet. But I don't see that being too far away. There was a Where it's just like, hey, like maybe Bumble will have like a, or Tinder will have like a feature, like a paid feature. It's like autopilot swiping based on your preferences. We'll just keep swiping for you. Tinder does that. Really? Yeah. They have an attractiveness score for every one of their users. Uh, and I they use that, that to too. determine yeah. who you get matched up with in order to optimize like the number of responses and things you're going to get. So it's not far off from that to be like, hey, we'll just automatically swipe yeah, we'll just choose if for the you. score is high enough. I something. mean, that's what a professional matchmaker does, mm. right? Yeah. It's like they, you know, match up with people and after a few, they get a better idea. But then like the description he gives in the book, I didn't highlight it. I kind of wish I had, but basically that your AI could pick a mate for you and then it could explain to you why you're initially disappointed about that yeah. choice. Where it's like, so I've, you know, I've, cons I've looked at your two options here, you know, John and Paul, and, you know, you should definitely date Paul. I know you're a little disappointed by that because you were hoping I was going to say John, but that's because John is slightly more attractive and you tend to overweight attractiveness. But <laughs> based on everything else, you have a much better and longer lasting relationship with Paul. And that is so foreseeable, right? I can 100% imagine that. It's like a conversation you'd have with a friend. Where it's they're like, like hey, yeah, decide between two people or something, and like, and, and sometimes the more objective third party is very helpful for these tough definitely. life choices, definitely, right? Where you just lack the context to like see certain things, and you're overweighted in your emotion, and it's not hard to believe that an AI will be able to make a lot of these decisions yeah. for us. Yeah, it doesn't seem far fetched. Even imagine a dieting app hooked up with like a micro needle patch that can trace your blood glucose and then can warn you before you're going to have a craving to break your diet. Right, that would not be hard to do, really, because it can just track the the needle is the hard part. Right. But once you have the needle, then if it can just know when your blood sugar starts to drop, it can be like, "Hey, you should have some berries because if you don't, then I know in like an hour you're really gonna want some pizza or something." Right, right? that would be crazy useful, yeah. and like people would sign up for that like right away. Uh, and that's probably not that far off, right? Yeah. And then we're just gonna trust more and more and more to this to an agent, yeah. yeah, to these agents, right? But we're that's still an oracle. Still yeah, an oracle. that's still an oracle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you guys where, choose okay, not but where to it could become an agent is if it also controls what shows up in your fridge. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. So then the Instacart shopper shows up and they're like, hey, you know, here's what you need to eat for dinner, right? And it's changing that based on how your blood sugar is fluctuating from your past meals so that it can avoid that crash so that you never have those cravings again, yeah. right? That's totally foreseeable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I would sign up for that. That sounds great. Right? <laughs> I mean, the... Maybe. the dystopian Depends. agent idea is the electrodes on your head literally telling you mm. but what he described the food in the fridge is functionally an yeah. agent yeah yeah same and, thing i mean yeah i would also sign up for that oh, i can't yeah. imagine it also would offload like you having to make that decision too it's like another thing you could just kind of put i mean on we're already doing that that's why you don't have candy in the house mm. right exactly yeah, yeah it's yeah. a more it's like a next step from that yeah. right but i guess we can jump ahead a little bit here i mean what we're getting into the u.s presidential elections yeah facebook that was facebook being able to predict what was this book written though 2016 so before the election (laughs) yeah you're right it was written in 15 came out in 16 you know what'd be amazing if like somebody saw this and was like yo that's a good idea (laughs) use this for the election (laughs) because no because like literally the quote is uh same story implies that in future u.s presidential elections facebook could not know not only the political opinions of tens of millions of americans but also who among them are the critical swing voters and how these voters might be swung. Which is exactly what happened. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just, also, like, I want to be clear, it's like, it's wrong that Facebook, like, shared the data, but it, like, that data was probably available to both sides. Oh, like, yeah. Probably well, the data is available to everyone. Exactly. I mean, that, yeah. the first time I built an app that interfaced with the Facebook API, I was blown away by the much? information you yeah. got on your users. It was like, every time somebody signed up, I was able to get, you know, their name, their hometown, their date of birth, like who their friends were, right? Like where they were living, you know, everything they liked, every group they were a part of, just like crazy amounts of data. And so, and people just, you know, like when you sign into a site using Facebook, Facebook gives them all that data. Right. I don't think they do as much anymore. I think there, but there's a bunch of places that are grandfathered in though to the old system. I heard they're getting rid of some of that though. It was literally like 10 years where none of that was regulated. Yeah. They just gave them everything. And yeah, I mean, you do that every time you log in with Facebook. I mean, with Twitter too, right? Twitter at least doesn't have quite as much on you. Right. But still it gives them all that data. Yeah. So we've sort of been talking about it, but we haven't used the word dataism yet. Yeah, yeah, dive yep. in there. that's the, the last major. Yeah, point. I think it's the last big thing we need to touch on here, which is just the main new religion that Harari is arguing we might move towards from humanism is to dataism, where humanism says that humans are the chief agents and the source of, you know, virtue and goodness and the arbiters of control in the world. But now we're going to move more towards dataism, where data and algorithms will be the supreme force and we will trust our decisions to the data the same way we used to trust our decisions to the Bible. And like we've just said, we're already seeing ourselves move in that direction. And then I think the question that he's asking indirectly is, you know, is that good? Is that a change that we want in the world? Before we dive into that, I want to quickly, because I think we touched on at the very beginning and then we jumped around, but his premise for why dataism or any competing one can beat out liberalism is that liberalism is completely challenged by life science. So the three points that liberalism makes is I am an individual, I have a single essence, myself is completely free, and I know things about myself nobody else can discover. Whereas life sciences says organisms are algorithms and humans are divisible into millions of bits. Thus, humans are not free. They are shaped and run by their algorithms and follows that an external algorithm could know you better than yourself. And this just totally knocks the wind out of liberalism. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I think that's a big part of what we see today with like the you know, far left arguments, right? A lot of like political correctness, social justice warrior type stuff, I think comes from this division. No, and, and even postmodernism too, where it's like there's a postmodernist argument that, you know, any honestly like use of data and difference to create a power dynamic between people is like a form of oppression, right? Whereas, you know, the data is just saying like, no, it's just data. 
right? It's like data is it's not just an attribute. Yeah, it's, it's just, just an attribute. It's just, yeah. you know, it's like it is not inherently good or bad. It yeah. just is. Whereas on the other side, you have like, like no. you have blonde hair, we have black hair. It's just an attribute. Right. It's just not saying one is better necessarily than the other, but you're just observing an attribute. Exactly. Yeah. And the liberal, I think, argument here against dataism is that no, you know, our, my subjective feelings and how I interpret things is important. And the data is saying like, well, it's not in terms of, it's not beyond you. Your subjective experience is not relevant to my decision-making, right? And my life. It can be if I choose to let it, but it is not in and of itself. It's like, you don't have a right to not be offended. Uh, Yeah. Whereas, and I think this is where we're seeing some of that clash now is that you've got the one camp that's saying, no, like data is good and like progress is good. And, you know, this kind of growth, right? Like a lot of the tech sector and what we might call the, like on the spectrum tech sector, where it seems like they just don't care about the emotional consequences of the things that they're arguing for or doing. And then you have the counter argument, which is like, no, the subjective experiences are important. Right. And like that might over, that might be more important than this data or this technology or any of that or this research. Right. And we need to take that into account. And that's probably where kind of this divide comes from is what do you care more about, right? Like the objective data, truth, reality, or the subjective experiences of individuals. Yeah. Like how that data is affecting people. Those are hard camps to square, I think, because they are basically religions, right? You're either in that more liberal camp or you're in that more dataist camp. And it's the same thing as like, you know, strong Christian, strong atheist. They're never going to really agree on anything to sort of talk over each other because they have conflicting values. Well, you know, I was surprised Harari didn't mention this, actually. When he talks about humanism replacing God, mm-hmm. you know, in Sapiens, so much of the book is about our ability to handle contradictions. And even now, the same person who says point. it was God's will will also say, well, go listen to yourself, right? Which, you know, if you look at humanism and religion, there are so many ways in which they conflict, but you find it on a day-to-day to kind of make it work, right? So I feel, you know, I also, you know, at work, we'll be like, should we make this decision? We're like, well, let's look at the data. Like we say that every single meeting where we have to make any kind of decision. But I would also say I'm very much, you know, in, I try to be in tune with like my experiences and being sensitive to those. And like, I feel that has value to me, right? Yeah. Which if you look at the underlying beliefs, they are in many ways contradictory, but you kind of reconcile them. So yeah, I actually, I, I tend to think that uh, emotions are like a very effective data processing tool. Like it's the best we've had up to now. basically right and like so when people say like oh i made my decision from my gut right or like i felt that that was the right decision it's like your brain is probably using data and compiling it into this feeling in the same way that like you might now be doing via like google analytics or something but it's just a more effective like more effective and more of like your conscious brain can now interpret data using these tools whereas before it'd be like okay well i've had 10 interactions with a deal and he just comes across as a trustworthy guy so i'm gonna do business with him Cause I just get a good feeling from this guy. Right. But it's probably that like, I've now had 10 data points of working with you and like all those experiences have been good. So like you get a good feeling working with this person or in uh, what everybody is saying, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you get sort of this uneasy feeling about someone, there's like yeah. body language cues they might be giving off that you're, you know, you are seeing, but your conscious brain is not necessarily interpreting that as like, Oh, he like put his hand on his face. He's being shady. Right. Like, but you're, subconscious brain, I guess, or subconscious mind, brain, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> uh, is interpreting that as an untrustworthy behavior. So I don't know. I think emotions, they're, like they're real, but they're a data processing tool. That's where that's what I was going to say in regards to what he was saying. I was going to go a totally different route. Nice. Which was, <laughs> that's, that's good because now we get two points out. Yeah. Which is that I think that you're right, deal, but I don't think it's necessarily a dichotomy in that what I think Harari's arguing is that we transition 
So, you know, we go way back and it was probably basically like pure religion for decision making, right? And pure, pure mythology, we'll say, I won't use religion. I'll say mythology for decision making. It was not, it, nobody really cared about the subjective experience of the individual. It was what is best based on our shared mythology for the most part. There might be, you know, certain cases where you don't feel that way, but imagine, you know, a real like hunter gatherer tribe that truly believes that human life doesn't start until a child is named. And so a mother is willing to kill her own child because the child is deformed, right? That is clearly against her, you know, human interests, subjective like experience, but she's surrendering that decision making to the mythology of the group. And then we hit some of the humanist religion and one by one, the decisions start moving towards, you know, the subjectivity. And I think what Harari is saying that as we move into dataism, one by one, we seed our subjective decisions to data decisions. And I think that in that case, your point is actually in support of it because you still have some things where I go with the data and some things where I go with my experience. But if you had four or five experiences, like Neil was saying, of the data, you know, giving you really good results in areas where you wouldn't have trusted it before, you probably start going with the data more and more and more and giving up more of that decision power to the algorithms as they develop. It's kind of helpful to think about it as like a mental framework, like a yeah. mental model where you're just dropping one that's no longer working. Yet. Exactly. You, you found a better model. Because when, ever... like when I think about if we made a product decision, it would always be data-based. But when I was thinking about moving to New York, there were some data points, sure. But really, it was like, I want to move to New York. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, or free will, whatever. So I, choose <laughs> to, I don't know. Anyway, uh, it, it, those were two different frameworks I was applying. Right. Exactly. Right? But maybe if you know, I could ask my Google Home, should I move to New York? Well, so this guy, uh, Nick Winter, actually had a cool method. He wrote a book called The Motivation Motivation Hacker or something. And he what he said in the book is that he knew there was this difference between like peak end heuristic and what you experience in the moment and what you remember afterwards. And so what he started doing was writing down little notes on like scale of one to 10, how much fun he was having at things that were supposed to be fun. And then he would be able to look back on those numbers afterwards and realize what the average like funness of the event was. And so one example he gave was whitewater rafting, where he went whitewater rafting. You know, he remembered it afterwards as being a ton of fun. But then he looked back at his notes and like 90% of the time he had very low ratings because he was in the van to the creek. He was like in between rapids. They were putting on their gear. You know, they were like waiting for the bus to come back. They're riding the bus home. And so it was actually not a fun experience, even though he remembered it as fun. Well, we've all done that with stuff. Right. Well, no, but like, but what I'm saying is his hack is cool. Yeah. Because he took down the data in order to make a better decision than his emotions. Right. Exactly. Because his emotions would say, oh, whitewater rafting was awesome. Let's go again. But then he just looked at the data. He was like, oh, this is much less fun than playing video games. Like I should play video games. Right. And obviously it goes back to the like ice cream and love example. But I can see there being cases of that where your phone measuring your adrenaline levels or something would say like, oh, well, you might think this was more fun, but actually, you know, based on these other biomarkers, like you enjoyed this more, right? It's more of a function of memory that he actually has this in the book. So I'm reading from the book here. Mm -hmm. Suppose you were given a choice between the following two vacation packages. And let's say that you were going to go and do like a very satisfying thing. So you're going to, I don't know, go and take care of a baby for a week, right? And the other one is a peak end example where uh, you go, say, to Vegas. But on the way out, your memory literally gets wiped. Like, which one would you choose? The one that is experientially more fun, but you have no memory of it, or the one where you have a good memory of it? So where I disagree with the data points throughout, and this is, again, this is just a value judgment. This is, for me, I would prefer, the memory of it is really all that matters in the end. Yeah, it's true. Because I'm going to live it, like, the moment, Mm, if it's a one-hour ziplining trip, 
if 90% of it, I'm miserable. And I bring this up because I recently went zip lining and I was just shitting myself the whole time. Uh, this was in Mexico. The guys, they literally nicknamed me El Pollo. So whenever I was coming up, because they noticed I was so nervous, they'd be like, oh, El Pollo. And they'd like, mess with me, push me early, things like that. But in, in my memory, I remember very positively. And the memory of it, I, you know, I was there for an hour, but the memory of it is much more than that. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good counter. But the data points, yeah. I was miserable. Like, I can't even put into words how much, how scared I was the whole time. Well, the last point in the book overall is really just Harari describing data as in its extreme form, which is that algorithms own everything, kind of like the way uh, corporations today do. So he talks about how individuals are not Google, right? Google is this entity kind of pie in the sky of sorts, and an algorithm can do a lot of the same. So an algorithm could own other algorithms. It could own corporations, and it can be the one deciding how to make money and how to reinvest money and making all those kinds of decisions. And he actually gives an example of an algorithm VC, yeah. where there's actually a fund where they have, I think, like five or so partners who all have human partners who all have voting rights, and one vote goes to an algorithm, yeah. which incidentally likes to vote for other algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like well, nepotism. It's, well, it's, <laughs> when you take that to its extreme, too, right? It's like, uh, you know, the whole software is eating the world type of idea where everything is moving more and more into algorithms. And from that data's perspective, what he has in the book here is that we can think of the whole species as a single data processing system. And all of our advancements historically have been to improve the processing of that system, primarily through these four means, right? Increasing the number of processors, number of humans, the variety of processors, different cultures, everything, uh, the number of connections between processors, so communication mediums, and the freedom of movement along existing connections, right? So decreasing taxes and barriers to entry and all of that, right? And all of that increases the proliferation of data, which gives rise to everything we've seen historically, right? All culture and technology and data and learning, like everything that we've done is this data processing result. And then the part of the other scary consequence of that is we can lead into a world run by algorithms, but also it's like, what is the ultimate output, right? What is the ultimate point? And he says that uh, datists would say that its output will be the creation of a new and even more efficient data processing system called the internet of all things, right? There will no longer be any sapiens. There will just be an internet, right? And not like the current internet, but this idea of a completely connected, you know, pure intersubjective system of consciousness, I guess you might say, or intelligence, right? Completely perfectly networked and constantly like processing without the need for these like fleshy meat sacks to be in the way. And that when you look at it from the data's perspective, that does seem to be the natural long-term consequence of the types of optimizations we have done historically. Yeah. Well, I think we're definitely coming up on time here yeah i think maybe uh we should wrap up with his three questions exactly yeah which i was it was a pretty cool ending to the book it was a great ending like that was just the way he ended it with these three questions i think this ending was stronger than the ending for sapiens because these are great questions to wrap up on yeah so all right i'll read them out loud so uh yeah harari ended with these three questions one are organisms really just algorithms and is life really just data processing two what's more valuable intelligence or consciousness three what will happen to society, politics, and daily life when non-conscious but highly intelligent algorithms know us better than we know ourselves? And we'll leave that. We'll leave that for everyone to think about. <laughs> I'm just shaking my head. At that. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't resist. He couldn't resist. planning that all episode. I was looking forward to it. Yeah, last two and a half hours. But Adil, thank you for joining us again for part three of our 
You've all know Harari series. This is a great time. It's a lot of fun. Me. We're already plotting our next Adil episode. It'll we'll give him a little break, but we're already plotting what it is. <laughs> <laughs> He's been sending me a lot of links and really lobbying for a certain episode. I would love to be here for that one. Yeah, we'll Ooh, let, keep you guys in suspense. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so just as we wrap up here, uh, a few thanks to our sponsors. So first off. Kettleandfire.com slash think kettle and fire for uh, your delicious bone brothy needs. Excellent if you're feeling sick. Like I was super sick the last two weeks. Cosette's a little sick right now. If Pepper gets sick, we'll probably give it to her too. But it's just great, like delicious. You can toss it in the microwave. I like to add a little cumin and ginger. Gives it a nice like spice uh, and like delicious warm, especially if it's a little cool out or you want something at the end of the day. So check them out. You get like up to 33% off or something yeah, if you use our code. Lot. And free so, shipping. And yeah, and free shipping. So great deal. Definitely go get it through that link. And yeah, don't buy it through Amazon. Buy it through us. And then review it on Amazon. Give them a good Amazon review. <laughs> but you get a much better deal if you buy it through our link on their site. So yep. go check that out. Up next, say Four Sigmatic. They are the purveyors of fine mushroom elixirs, probably most famous for their mushroom coffee. Which we were drinking during the episode. We were. We had multiple cups of it. I've, I'm actually, so I'm on their subscription plan now, which is a great deal because you can pick a bunch of different mushroomy elixirs and then you get them every 15, 30 days. Does code thing work? the subscription oh you know what i'm not sure if we we did this last time didn't we i forgot okay so i don't know if it does i haven't tried it well so here's the thing here's the thing thing. we only get credit the first time you buy from them so go to four sigmatic great products you should keep buying them their products are amazing go to four sigmatic try out a few i would recommend the mushroom coffee the uh adaptogen blend the oh so actually one right i've got i've got a new one i gotta give to you which is their mocha mushroom coffee that sounds really good it is delicious highly recommended uh yeah it's got a little cocoa and chaga but there's no there's basically no carbs so it's not really sweet it's just like it's kind of got the coffee flavor with a nice chocolatey taste to it uh sounds really good it's delicious yeah i'll give you some go buy that so yeah check that out check out the cordyceps and the reishi i love the reishi perfect at the end of the day yeah so pick up a few of those and then whatever you like get the subscription after because you'll get about 15 percent off if you use code think and then the subscription also gives you about 20 percent off for each order so it's a great deal check it out and then last but certainly not least perfectketo.com slash think so perfect keto for all of your keto diet related needs we're gonna have a related episode coming up in a few weeks so look out for that but yeah if you're curious about the ketogenic diet or if you've been on it a little bit and you want some subs to help you out then go grab their exogenous ketones uh their pre-workout their collagen blend their protein powder you know one of the hard things on keto right is that you can't eat too much protein because it can knock you out of keto but with their protein powder uh you know there's no carbs and it's a little lower in protein it's got some other stuff mixed in there so exactly yeah so you don't get knocked out of keto when you're having pure protein after workout so really good and they've got a lot of really great content on their blog about keto diet if you want to learn more about it so go check that out and i think aside from that you can always go to majorthinkpodcast.com slash support where you can click through to Amazon or any of the links we mentioned. Anything you buy on Amazon helps support the show. A deal is actually buying something on Amazon right As now. We speak. And I don't know. I was I, don't, I wasn't click, watching him. I don't you think you through? clicked through the made you think link. Uh yeah, you better X out. That's right. <laughs> but this guy I'm gonna give you guys a couple dollars right now. <laughs> <laughs> we invite no, him, we, we invite him over to our recording studio. I we know. eat him much coffee. <laughs> Doesn't use our link. So please but, everyone no, listening say, that's a, be better than a deal. Exactly. Use our link. <laughs> But it is like the easiest way for you to support the show. We've had multiple people tell us that this is kind of, they view this as like a free way to support the show because they were going to buy stuff anyway on Amazon and it doesn't cost you anything more. 
And what so. you can actually do is go to majorthingpodcast.com slash support, right click on our link to Amazon and bookmark it. Yeah. And then anytime you go to Amazon, just click through that bookmark instead of typing in Amazon. Yeah. And then anything you buy on Amazon will help support the show. And it gives you about 24 hours, right? So if you want to click on it now and you're going to buy something later, great. But if you click on it now and you want to buy something in three days, hit your bookmark. Click on it again. Yeah, click the bookmark. Or just click the bookmark, yeah. Yeah, and then you'll be supporting the show. You'll be helping us out. We'll be able to keep, you know, coming in here, reading books, talking Getting about them. Getting better guests in a deal. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Poor deal. It's okay. It's better, it's better than when we make fun of you when you're not here. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's okay, but they're all recorded and you listen to the episodes. So you yeah, can, exactly. You'll, it's not really behind your back because you can hear them. It just takes you a month to, to hear about it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you should so. also go subscribe to our email list. So people who are on our email list heard about this announcement. Yeah, uh, a special episode coming out next week. We're not yep. going to give it away. Yeah, but, but people on the email list got to have a special role in the development of the episode. I got they to were be involved. partially involved They're in getting creating. shout outs. Yep, exactly. So you hear about stuff like that if you're on the email list, which you can subscribe at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Uh, you also will hear about the books that we're doing ahead of time, as well as any cool events, giveaways, stuff that all going kinds on of good podcast. things. So it's probably the best way, uh, you know, that plus following us on Twitter. But we obviously on Twitter talk about other stuff too. So if you don't want the other stuff, you just want the podcast stuff, just go to subscribe to the email list. Or you should do both. Or do both. Hit huh. us up on Twitter. Let us know what you like, dislike about the show. If you talk about crypto too much. Yeah. Or uh... <laughs> Hey, we do appreciate that that stuff though because like it's, it's not, very yeah. easy because we can't see your reactions. It's not like public speaking where you say something and you can see what people react. It's like you find out a month later. So your feedback is instrumental in us shaping the show and also deciding what we go read next. Well, and we, you know, we only do this once every week or two, yeah. right? So we might be bringing up the same stuff too often and not realize it because we, you know, we're doing the show only every week or two and then we're talking about a lot of stuff in between. So to us, we're not talking about <laughs> yeah, it too much. But true. then yeah. if you're listening to three or four of these on a plane, you might be like, all right, guys, I'm done <laughs> listening to you shit on Middlebury, yeah. right? <laughs> So please, if you know, if we're talking about something too much, let us know. If you want to hear, you know, us talk about anything else or yeah, other right. examples, like that's great too. Book ideas, article ideas, we love that stuff. Love that stuff. So yeah, let us know on Twitter. Let us know on the email newsletter. For you should Twitter. leave a review. Oh yeah, leave a review on iTunes. Yep, that's, that's super helpful. Great way to support the show. Thank you to everyone who's done that. Exactly. And yeah, have you done that? <laughs> Give me a break. Oh, <laughs> so again, do not do like got a this deal. Mischievous look on his face, like <laughs> uh, uh. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Before I come on again, I got some work to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Give him homework. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So don't be like a deal. Leave <laughs> a review. Use our iTunes. Amazon link. Use our Amazon link. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's pretty much, pretty it. much it. Thank you all for joining us for another episode of Made You Think. And we'll be back next week. See you guys.